Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Safety Insurance, offering auto insurance policies designed to help for when the worst happens. You can ask an independent agent about safety insurance. Safety Insurance will help you manage life's storms. And the trustees. You can ring in spring at Nomkeg in Stockbridge with the annual Daffodil and Tulip Festival. Colorful seasonal blooms April 19th through Mother's Day. Advanced tickets required. More at thetrustees.org spring. Xfinity from Comcast is proud to sponsor this conversation from Boston Public Radio. More at Xfinity.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio in China, tennis star Peng Shui has reemerged after a mysterious three-week-long disappearance that had the international sports community asking what happened. But is she really safe? We'll talk to NBC Sports Boston's Trini Kuznerik about this and an uncharacteristically giddy Bill Belichick who ditches typical one-word responses when asked by an interviewer about his favorite Thanksgiving side dish. Then at noon, it's Ask the Mayor with newly elected Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. She'll talk about fossil fuel divestment, police reform, a free tea, and more. We're taking your calls as well, so if you've got a question, give us a ring or send us an email and get in touch. That's all ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. And you're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Hello, hey Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. How are you? And we should say the mayor will join us today. The new mayor will join us for Ask the Mayor in exactly an hour. And we should also mention to you that the judge in the uh, trial of the three men charged with killing Ahmed Arbery in Georgia is giving instructions to the jury. And obviously, if there's a verdict, which is hard to believe would be that fast, even though I think the case is pretty clear, frankly, I just, we'll bring that to you live. May I just say something before I proceed? Sure. Did you just hear the news? I didn't hear Considering that. releasing all this radioactivity into Cape Cod Bay. Hmm. That's that's good. I think that's a good idea. Is well, it'll dissipate idea? by the time you go down for the summer, so I don't <laughs> oh, think it's really an issue. But before we worry about the waste. summer, it is almost Thanksgiving, which means we're all gearing up to gather with friends and family, holding our breath, hoping no one says they hope that Donald Trump will be running in 2024. So why not get a head start on the festivities? We're always open to a, I don't know, to a deep fry or not to deep fry debate. But we want to get into something a little more existential today. Do we even need a turkey? The Boston Globe brilliantly pitted food writer Deborah First <laughs> and travel writer Chris from you they're against each other this morning to weigh the pros and cons of turkey on the table. We're going to ask you that too. Plus... While we're at it, why on earth, Marjorie, does anybody eat dinner on Thanksgiving at one o'clock in the afternoon? The number that is eight seven seven. Excellent point. It's an outrage. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Or to make Marjorie happy because she loves reading the email, you can email us at bpr <laughs> at wgbh dot org. You know, I don't even know much about your turkey behavior. You're you are or not a turkey. Fan, I can't well, remember. you know, I love Christopher Muther because I think he's absolutely a riot, and he, he's right about the fact that people don't usually rave about the turkey. But I got to say, I'm with Deva first on this whole thing. You know, it's tradition. She's a pro turkey person. She's a pro turkey. Uh, she said, you know, it may be dry and it may be bland. It may not taste terrible. Well, maybe this year I'll be a little bit more adventurous, have more dark meat than uh, light meat, which is which is better. Um, but but you know, it's, it's got more taste. Obviously, it's, it's, it's got more taste. It's kind of the tradition. It's what you do every year, and it's Deva first. 
points out, then afterwards you can have turkey on seeded rye with Russian dressing sandwiches, which are really Don't you have any good. of your own thoughts on this? I mean, what is this quoting Deborah First? What is your position, not well, what is Deborah First's position you know, or Chris I, from you there? I'm more like Bill Belichick. We'll talk about him later with Tony mm. Kuznirak, who really is into the potatoes he is. At, Christmas, at Thanksgiving. And, mm-hmm. and I'm with him. You know, it's nothing like great mashed potatoes, which happens to be one of the things I actually One of your specialties, can make. that yeah. is correct. I make it in a very... With half and half or whole cre- with uh, heavy, heavy cream. Heavy cream. It's good for, no, by the way, it's good for you, too. So you, there are at least a 50-50 odds you'll live to the following Thanksgiving. Lots of butter. After eating them. A couple of sticks of butter. But I'm into the stuffing and I'm into the uh, the mashed potatoes. I'm into the sides, Jim. You are. Yes. Our number is 877-301-8970. By the way, I don't have to make excuses, unlike Marjorie. Mm-hmm. I am a huge turkey fan. Really? I love turkey. You know, you need to know how to cook it, mm-hmm. I should say. And by the way, a couple of years ago, if people, you know when people ask us at an event, what are your favorite memories from the 20 years you've been doing radio together? Yep. You know what's right at the top of my list? That endless conversation we had with Mrs. Butterball at the 800 <laughs> number about 15 years ago. Remember we called her on the phone? I love Mrs. Live Butterball. Live on the radio. Now it turned out, well we didn't realize until we called Mrs. Butterball. There are about 5,000 Mrs. Butterballs. There's not, we'd assume we were so lucky. Yeah, we didn't the day get before Thanksgiving, we got Mrs. Butterball. <laughs> but it turns out that she, where were they sitting in Minnesota or some place in the Midwest? Place. She had a great Midwestern, one of those flat accents. Yeah. I thought you were going to say your greatest memory was when Wilson Farms would bring into the, the food. You know, we used to be at a place with like five radio stations. Mm-hmm. And during the commercial break, someone announced that Wilson Farms Farm showed up. Yeah. Had arrived with the turkey. It's like roller and, derby. Down the hall. like a roller derby. was. <laughs> Stampede. Jim, you knocked over several little tiny people on your way to get to the festivities. Well, it's because I'm a traditionalist. 877-301-8970. Callie has already called our coworkers in the control room. She says you have turkey on Thanksgiving because you're Southern, and that's just t- the time to do it. I am not Southern, by the way. Even no. though I've been to South Philadelphia I'm when I was either. growing up. But I am a huge turkey fan. And I think it's an excuse to say, well, as you just said and Deborah first said, mm-hmm. well, you know, even though I'm not a huge turkey fan, the sandwich the day after is great, which it is, by the way. I yep. mean, with stuffing on it or dressing, as Callie calls it. And you hate cranberry sauce, don't you, if I recall correctly? I do not correctly? like cranberry sauce, I love no. cranberry sauce. Yeah, every once in a while. On, you know, on, on Thanksgiving, I have a little cranberry sauce because you feel like you're supposed to. Although we were talking to the head of the Wampanoag tribe yesterday and we realized – once again, well, there was no turkey served at the original that's a Thanksgiving. Very good point. Yeah. So before we take the calls, Marjorie, many year, for many years I've mentioned something. See if you've learned about mm-hmm. this. What is a turducken? Do you know? A turducken mm-hmm. is a turkey that is stuffed with a duck, and yeah. it's also stuffed with a chicken. Exactly. And Christopher Muther raises the raises the brilliant question of Which is what? if you have to stuff the turkey with the duck and the chicken. For some taste. Doesn't that kind of say it all? No. He is anti-turkey. I know he is. As it is. I know he is. Uh, 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 he was comparing the turkey he to calls it a Franken- dry, old, stringy ant is what he was That's saying. That's right. He calls it a Frankenfowl. I know. 877-301-8970. So it's really anything Thanksgiving meal. It's only two days to go that you want to talk about. If you want to talk about the great deep fried debate, I've never had one. I hear they are un. Believe I think Shirley Leung goes to a deep fried turkey thing, if I recall correctly. Every single year she says it's extraordinary. I think she says that. Sharon and Cranston, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Welcome, Sharon. Hi. Hey. Thank you. Yeah, uh, you too. Long time listener, first time caller. Well, thank, thank you. you. So uh, the pandemic uh, last year, we didn't have our usual go to the relatives, 30 people, sure. two turkeys. It was just the... Uh, small nuclear family and it's going to be that way again this year and 
when we were planning the menu last year, we all kind of looked at each other and said, well, none of us really dig the turkey. Wow. So um, <laughs> last year we started a tradition wow. of having rack of wow. lamb and making wow. a really decadent dinner. <laughs> Rack of lamb is one of the great wow. things ever, and I think that is a, to- despite the fact that I'm a turkey fan, Sharon, rack of lamb is a perfectly wonderful turkey substitute. Did you feel you were missing out on the tradition, or you were okay after the fact? No, because for us, the tradition is just being with family and being thankful oh. for our, what we have, and so we're going to make a nice salsa verde with it, and it's going to be... Carol. That's perfect. Well, that's what's, that, what's that noise in the background? I think it's a kid. Is it a kid? Yeah. Oh, I, I, have, I have my son who has um, special needs. He has a genetic um, disorder, and he's trying to get in on the conversation. Well, send him our best. Uh, by naming the people in our family. <laughs> <laughs> and tell him Happy Thanksgiving as well. And same to you, Sharon. Thank you very much for the call. 877-301-8970. You like rack of lamb? One of the great things ever. And by the way, I have a fabulous rack of lamb, garlic-encrusted rack of lamb uh, recipe that you, you could make. Yeah, okay. it's very simple. I, I'm not a lamb person. Rosemary, you're not a lamb person. Not a lamb you're not person. a lamb person. You're not a turkey person. <laughs> so what is Marjorie having with Potatoes. her nuclear family? A mountain of mashed potatoes. <laughs> by the way, if someone said to you for Thanksgiving, sadly, we're not going to have a turkey. Well, what are we going to have, Marjorie says? We're going to have a pile of mashed potatoes. You go, yes. I tell you, I, I'm not a big fan of Bill Belichick for a whole yeah. bunch of reasons, but yeah. I, I feel a certain kindred kindredness with him today because we're going to talk about this later, as I've yeah. said before. Yeah. His fondness for any yeah. kind of potato, mm-hmm. mashed, baked, au gratin, it's beautiful. fries, it's any beautiful. kind of potato, and, and I'm with him on that. I don't know if he's Irish, but I am. Maybe that's the explanation. I don't think he is. Eileen from West Newbury. Hi, Eileen. Hello, Eileen. What's up? Hi, I am calling to add on that we are doing Thanksgiving lunch this year, and I am so excited. We're what? starting at like 1130. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. why, why, explain that to me. I don't really – why is that, Eileen? To get rid of the people early? What is the point? Okay, so yes to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what else? I have two, two young kids. I oh. have a – an almost two-year-old and a four-and-a-half-year-old, and dinner with them is just terrible. If people are around, oh, well, that's... they start to lose it, and then I have to clean up after putting them to bed. So this year, my parents are coming and make some lunch. The kids go down for a nap, and I'm done for the day. Well, well, that actually is strategically okay. I think wise. a lot of the timing around Thanksgiving has to do with the drinking on mm. Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're not, you got little kids. You're having your parents. You're probably not really breaking out the heavy duty alcohol. So that no. that makes sense. If you, but if you are somebody that's going to be drinking before dinner and Thanksgiving, you don't want to start too early in the day because then you're, you know, nodding off at like nine o'clock, right? Not making it to dinner. You know, exactly. I mean, the only problem I have, Marjorie obviously is talking about the drinking on Thanksgiving. I am talking about the food, which is a little more appropriate for a show like ours. I, I, I am among Americans who stuff myself to the point where I can't move at the end of a Thanksgiving meal. And isn't it hard being that kind of stuffed, like immobile stuffed at one o'clock in the afternoon? Isn't that troubling for you or or no? It probably will be, but I've made our menu very light this year. That's too bad. It's only four adults and two kids, so, you know, we figured having a light meal won't make it too bad. You can have a nap with the kids, Eileen, Eileen, thank you. Thank you for a very creative approach to Thanksgiving (laughs) and sharing with us. No, that makes – I mean, the 1130 thing, if you have young kids, I guess, makes sense. What's the drink of choice for you on – 
uh, Thanksgiving. Anything? Nothing. Nothing in particular. You know, whatever. Sometimes. Is there a traditional Thanksgiving drink? I don't even know. Is there a drink that's attached to? I don't Thanksgiving? know. I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, it's it's nice to have. Um, you don't want to have too, something too much because it's still early in the day. You have to go for a long time. So. Wait, wait. So, what time do you do? Are you in, you're not eleven thirty or no, twelve o'clock. No, I'm I'm going to a Thanksgiving event. Yeah. At the, well, we're there at three. We dinner is about four four thirty. That's not horrible. That's, that's a good that's, time. I think. How about you, Jim? What. Uh, what, what is, is that your, again? What is your What is your schedule? Uh, we're having a, sort of a French kind of dinner. We're eating at ten o'clock, <laughs> ten p.m. We're having. You are not. We're cruising the boulevards till. Uh, uh, actually, we're going out to dinner this year. You are. Yeah, I know. Why are you doing that? I, you know, because I'm the cook and I, I'm tired. So, of did you doing make it. a Thanksgiving reservation like weeks in advance? Weeks in advance. Yeah. Where are you going? Can I'm you not tell telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm not, well, you might show up. I'm not. That's right. Me? I'm going to come by. I'll tell you on Friday, but not uh, not in advance. And to all the browdyettes. Suzanne in a car. You're on Boston Public Radio. We really appreciate your call. Hi. Hey, Jim. Hey, Marjorie. How Hi. Are you doing? Great. Thank you. Jim, Jim, you might remember me as the person years ago you rear-ended on Huntington Ave. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can I – let me just tell you something. Hold this on. was one of the worst experiences of my whole life. It wasn't on Huntington. It was on Melnia Cast. But... I thought you rear-ended somebody no, in the Southeast we Expressway. we were taking a ride onto Melnia Cast. Whatever. I Suzanne, who's, te- who, who's telling the story? My neck still her hurts. My neck still hurts. <laughs> so, Get out the checkbook, Jim. The only thing that happens – now, let me tell you the story, and then, Suzanne, you can choose to – tell your version of this you choose so it was either on melania cast or returning on a melania cast suzanne stops abruptly with no notice with no (laughs) signal suzanne i will tell the story suzanne suzanne i'm telling the story uh and so uh it wasn't my fault but i did rear end her and i get out of the car and she is irate which was inappropriate and when she saw it was me what did you say suzanne do you remember I think you said, do you know who I am? <laughs> exactly. I, I don't believe I did. I'm so glad you called, well, Wait Suzanne. a second. Well, I'm not. But, Suzanne, it got even worse because I get through this incident, and I think I behaved appropriate. It might have been my fault. I can't remember. And we get to our old show on radio station on Marcy Boulevard. And who is one of the first callers? This call screen, which tells us who the callers are, says this woman says you rear-ended her on Melania Cass Boulevard. I, of course, am saying to the producers, we're not going to take the call. And, of course, Marjorie <laughs> takes the call. Of course. And your neck still hurts like 10 years later. Is that your story, Suzanne? Yes, that's 100% <laughs> Well, that you know, is... Suzanne, Jim has a long and checkered past in terms of rear-ending people. I've done it a couple you of times. You rear-ended some oh, elderly lady. the only No, one. no. Well, on 93 North, no. I did that, And then too. he was arrested by the state police for going backwards the wrong way okay, on, on Morrissey Boulevard. <laughs> okay, Suzanne. They wanted me to go to court and lie for him. Okay. And I refused. Oh, Suzanne, goodness. don't bring that up again next time you call. But since you did call, never, never, never. what about Thanksgiving? Okay, so this is the first year that we are uh, vegetarians. Oh, my goodness. Yes, we started, I should say, we stopped eating meat in April. Um, I miss it dearly and desperately and think about it every day. But we did this because our daughter bullied us into it. And I'm tired of hearing about the environment. So we are now officially, well, I should say we're pescatarians, but we're not eating fish for Thanksgiving. What are you having? So uh, we are having something called, wait for it, Mushroom Wellington. Oh my God. Now, I scoured the New York Times 
recipe for a suitable Thanksgiving recipe. Uh, and this one came up. And, of course, you need to read the comments because that's the best part, right? Uh, totally. Recipes. Somebody said it is an epic of Spielbergian proportions. <laughs> to prepare this dish, which has 11 steps to it. And each step is like a full paragraph long. Wow. Um, it requires like 37 different kinds of mushrooms mm -hmm. and, um, you know, of course, days of preparation. And it is basically a log, I think, full of mushrooms. And that's wow. what we will be dining on for Thanksgiving. Can you yeah. email us on Friday and let us know how the mushroom Wellington went, Suzanne? I'm dying to hear. Are you, I will. Or do you feel trepidation? Is there? Are you nervous about I this? I feel absolute um, fear and yeah, I'm petrified and I'm already exhausted before I've even started. Now, Suzanne, and before you... I'm parked outside of Whole Foods because I need, who else carries 37 different kinds of mushrooms? So That is absolutely true. Right now, so right? one last thing, Suzanne, I just got a text from my lawyer. They hope to resolve the matter <laughs> with you by the end of the year. So just be in I'm touch. Waiting with bated breath. Be in touch with yours and it's great to hear from you. Sadly, okay, thanks, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. And to, Thank you too. to you, too, Suzanne. By the way, sadly, one that of many is, is a true been rear -ended story. By I did rear end She was, and she was unbelievably nice. Yep. And then she did call the radio show, which was unfortunate. You know, Margot has a point that um, eating at one o'clock is great because you can stuff your, you can stop yourself or stuff yourself, and then go for a nice long walk afterwards, and then come back and eat some pie. Well, see, but isn't that the problem? But I, I don't think it's just pie. You get when with all that. Great stuff. Don't you go back and eat a second meal so you feel even more sort of, you know, buried in food than you did before. I think it's just too early. I understand that caller that talked about her young kids, That's that makes sense. But beyond that, this one o'clock thing is just so, not for me. You, I mean, you don't have to wear expand away pants necessarily to the Thanksgiving meal. You can, you can like... No, obviously you don't. What you do? Pants with a buckle, and then maybe you wouldn't eat so no, much. No, I just what generally my I, I don't want to swear to this is the case. Mm -hmm. My general experience on Thanksgiving, at least for the past ten years, is I'm usually able to zip my pants again in a week. <laughs> Sometimes it takes two weeks, but but usually within a week I'm back to okay. back to fully zipped. Okay, we're getting. <laughs> All of our pettiest Thanksgiving I believe that gripes. woman called. This is like 15 years after I hit her, and she's her still talking about it. Where's James Sokoloff? One of the emailers <laughs> wants to know. Where is James Sokoloff? He should be called immediately. Anyway, we are talking about gripes about Thanksgiving. That conversation continues on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. We were inspired by the lead story in the Globe today, uh, a, a, a smackdown, essentially, a columnist smackdown between Deborah First, food writer for the Globe, and Chris Vermeer, their travel writer about whether Turkey is critical. We're also added to the discussion this absurd notion, at least in general, that most people eat. What do they, do they even call it dinner when it's at one o'clock? A Thanksgiving meal at one o'clock? I guess so. And if there's anybody else who I've rear-ended in prior years... <laughs> 
like Suzanne, you can call to 877-301-897, unless the matter is not settled, in which case I can't talk about it yeah. at this particular Maybe time. Maybe the state trooper could call in whom you abused. That was a separate uh, situation. By the way, by the way, and Marjorie and I had to go to trial, and Marjorie had to be, and this is totally true, had to be subpoenaed as a hostile witness on my behalf. If you're new to the show and thinks that is made up, it is not. Yeah. Marjorie was my witness. Well, that and I was had the a problem. subpoena her to come was the to testify in I my behalf. I saw what happened, and you wanted me to spin it, Jim. Let's face it. I did it. not want you to spin it. I want you to tell the truth, <laughs> and you weren't willing to do it. Liz and Littleton, <laughs> you are next on Boston Public Radio. What's up, Liz? Hi. I just wanted to give you my reason for having Thanksgiving dinner lunch at 1 o'clock. Okay, okay. Okay, give it a go. All right, all right. My um, parents' apartment condo flooded about six months ago, so they've been living in a small apartment hotel type thing, and um, so they can't have it at their house, so I'm going to have it at my house, and it's an hour and 15 minutes away, and if we have it later than one, they'll be driving home in the dark, which is Okay, that's a good reason. That's a good reason. thank you. You sound defeated, Liz. Marjorie's a great show. It's okay. We're okay with it. Okay? Yeah. But you know what? It could also be considered eating late or later than Jim because we're having it on Friday. Why? Why Friday? Because they're going to um, the other side of the families. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, lots of people... Liz, that's a good point. Thank, Thank you for you, the Liz. call. We Lots of people do good that. Luck. Well, they'll have, you know, especially when they have kids mm-hmm. and they've got in-laws and all this going around different places. They're going one place mm-hmm. on Thursday. And then some people have a neighborhood Thanksgiving thing they on do. Saturday. Yeah, I've heard of that kind of thing, which is sort of fun. Mm. You know, mixing it up a little bit, Jim. Mixing, mixing it, it up. up. Yeah, I understand that. You know, uh, Liz wants me to know that uh, uh, that uh, you can have a lot of cannabis drinks, you know, now that they are legal now. Infused Seltzers kind of and tonics, yeah, for Thanksgiving beverages. She works at a dispensary and she's in love with her cannabis drinks, all these great flavors to calm your nerves and make you feel You ever had a cannabis-infused drink? I have not yet. How come? I I don't know, Jim. No, I'm serious about that. It How just come? didn't didn't occur to me, you know. Oh. It didn't occur to me. Well, but, Thanksgiving is Thursday, so I, let I me did, know on Friday. I did make some brownies. You did? Yes, I did. How deadly were they? They were spectacular. They, I bet they were. <laughs> they were spectacular. I bet the they Washington were. The Washington Post has the best recipe for these gooey, fudgy cannabis For marijuana? No. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Mm-hmm. That's great. Yep. I'll bring them in. I'll so you come, I mean, but we've had this discussion as recently as two weeks ago. So are you comfortable eating those in front of a kid? I know you're not comfortable no. smoking no. in front of your kids. No. Wait, you wouldn't have them. You think your kids have ever done? Yes? No? <clears throat> Jim, you, you know, on the mother. You know what I mean? On the mother. Boy, that and now is I have a so weird. I understand that. But I'm you're talking about it on the radio, too. So it isn't like my, it's my a big secret. My children have never heard my radio show, Jim, so it's okay. okay. <laughs> Barbara. From what do you do <laughs> for a living, Mom, actually? How do you earn your keep? Hi, Barbara. What's up? Hi. 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 I just wanted to say that I don't think Turkey has anything to do with Thanksgiving because from my experience, I grew up with my Hungarian Jewish grandmother making all of her delicacies, brisket, stuffed cabbage, noodle kugel, things like that. And I never had turkey. So I read that column in the Globe today and I thought, I I don't get it. Now, now my husband, we're a mixed marriage and my husband loves turkey. So this year we're actually getting, but it's hard to make turkey for one person. So we're getting takeout from a delicatessen where I can get turkey for him and potato pancakes and matzo ball soup for me. Well, boy, I I would be there for the second half. But wait a second, when you're getting turkey from a deli, is that like sliced turkey or that's like a real turkey? 
you could get a whole turkey, but it'd be for six people, which is a little bit oh, overkill. So I'm, he's getting a pound of sliced white breast turkey and a quart of giblet gravy and mashed potatoes, and he'll be happy. And he makes his own, our pumpkin pie. So, you know, everybody I has... The, I guess my point is everybody has their own traditions, and why fight Fine over point. what it is? Barbara, excellent, uh, excellent point. It's a healing kind of call. Thank you for making it. 877 8970 uh, is the number. We started out uh, borrowing a question from the Boston Globe about whether turkey is essential to the uh, to the whole Thanksgiving experience on Thursday or in the case of a prior caller on Friday. Then we also brought up the whole issue of, uh, of uh, eating early, which apparently a lot of people do for a whole variety of reasons. Some of it, I think, tradition. And, of course, we had the caller who said, I rear-ended her on Melanie Kess Boulevard 15 years ago. You did. Which and, I did, And one of many. It's a, it's Not a one of many, situation. one of several. One of several. <laughs> one of several, okay. One of several. Here's Judith from Newton. She says she comes from Memphis like Callie does. Yeah. And she says she has a whole schedule. Dinner at one, an evening meal is called supper, she says. Yeah, I know the that. The order for Thanksgiving, one o'clock cocktails, two o'clock dinner, 3.30, a nice 30 to 45-minute walk if weather permits. After the walk, dessert. After dessert, the dancing begins. I think that's a little anal. I mean, I'm serious. I mean, don't you? I mean, one of the beauties of Thanksgiving to me is it's a loose kind of day. Now, do you remember when we started doing this? By the way, talk about how long we've been on the air 21 years or mm-hmm. something. Do you remember what our key topic was about Thanksgiving dinner, which is no longer relevant in 2021? No, I don't. Do you put the television oh, on oh, that's the right. table? That's right. That was because a long people time are watching ago. the football games, mm-hmm. but obviously people don't have those kind of TVs. It was only 20 years ago. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> People did put the TV on the table. They literally put it. Almost every caller said they put the TV right in the middle of the table (laughs) so they can watch a damn football game so they don't have to talk to their relatives or whatever it is. Well, last year, of course, the big discussion went after Trump. It was not last year. It was several years ago when Trump was elected. That was the big thing of discussion. Do you talk about politics uh, during Thanksgiving dinner? I think that that's subsided somewhat because now we're so used to it. I don't know about that. I think we're entering the next phase. Don't you remember the great SNL skit when anybody mentioned Trump at dinner? They started playing Adele in the background. <laughs> full blast. And full they blast. Everybody stood up singing. and started singing hello or whatever the hell. It wasn't hello, whatever it was. Ron from Seabrook. What do you think, Ron? Hey, Ron. Welcome. Hi. Um, just a couple of comments about frying a turkey. Please. Um, statistically, the mishaps and injuries might mean that it's not a great idea. Um, I've had dangerous. it half a dozen times. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know what happens is the people who are made responsible for frying the turkey are usually the guys who have likely been drinking the most. Excellent point. It's time to fry it. Very good point. So, That's a great point. Um, yeah, well, I could tell you a few stories, but well, so, tell us one. Ron, what, tell us one. My understanding is the wait before you tell a story. My understanding is there's one. Is it? It's not supposed to be cold, or what are you supposed to do to not blow up the house? There's one. <laughs> there's one. What are the rules? Run. Well, people dunk them in the oil, and yeah. there isn't enough room for the turkey, you know. Oh, I so see. So it okay. overflows. It falls in problem. the fire. Oh, that's a problem. Um, a, guy, a guy I know told me about a couple of good old boys from his hometown yeah. frying a turkey in their flip-flops mm-hmm. and managed to tip the thing over. And by the time it was all done, there's a fire to put out. And one of the victims had to have his feet amputated. Well, that's oh, that's no. unfortunate. Oh, that is Ron. really unfortunate. 
Oh that's my God! Quite a story. Yeah, that's quite okay. A story. Yeah, okay. Thank so, you, you know, Ron. So, that's sort of a downer with two days to go to Thanksgiving, <laughs> talking about I foot amputations for. No, Ron. I'm glad though you called because there are some people who are planning on frying their turkeys, and if they're going to do it, I guess they should wear steel-covered boots or, or something, something to make yeah. sure that that or not get drunk. Ron's your point, Ron, about. The male, that being the man, is more likely to make it, and he is more likely to be drunk is very insightful comment on your part. Ron, thank you very much for the call. You, you've never had a fried turkey, have you? No, I've never had a fried everybody turkey. Everybody said, everybody with whom I've spoken said it is spectacular, but as Ron said, it is really dangerous to make it. Paul says he's putting pot in everything this year, starting with his breakfast Thanksgiving mimosa. Really? Yeah, so he's going to have a wild day. I can't believe you're not doing this infused. Forget the kid thing. I can't believe you're not doing the infused thing. Well, maybe really... I'll try that, Jim. Maybe you, <laughs> maybe you have. <laughs> Ken in Cambridge, what's your deal? Oh, hi. Hi. Um, nice, uh, nice to speak with you folks. You too, um, Ken. What's up? All right. Well, uh, we fry our turkey every year. Oh. Um, and a lot of people don't follow rule number one. Which is? Which is? Before you even think about deep frying a turkey, buy a fire extinguisher that can put it out. That's a great oh, idea. That's yeah. A great idea. yeah. Yeah. And, and like if you have the fire extinguisher, you never have a problem. Yeah. All these people who have the problem never had the fire extinguisher. Uh, the other thing is that Well, you ben do Franklin, have one problem, Ken. You have no turkey, obviously. Well, that's a no, problem. No, CO2. CO2 fire extinguisher. What, you can eat the turkey after you sprayed it with CO2? Yeah, it evaporates. Oh, well, then, okay, oh, that's fine. okay. You can also do it at somebody yeah. else's house, so it doesn't really matter what, I, you know, okay? Or, or, well, rule number two is yeah. do this outside, and outside. rule number three is we we put a stainless steel chain through it so that we can pull it out in case of a problem. Oh, that's a good idea. Gosh, you've really got this uh, figured out, Ken. Well, so that's a couple of things, uh, experience, I guess. Ken, um, before you move on to your it, next thing, how great does it taste? Is it is it worth the effort? Is it great? Um. It's about five minutes a pound. No, I didn't mean how is, long does it take. How how great does it taste? Taste. How does it, it, taste? It, it, it it's it's good. Oh, good. Um, okay. it's it, it's it's really nice. I mean, the the thing is that we brine it the day before, Ooh. and we measure the amount of liquid that it caught uh, the the liquid level with the turkey, sure. and we mark the pot with the brine. So Got when it. we empty it out, we we fill the oil to that marker. Fine. So, so we have, so we know how much you know it doesn't overflow and all that other stuff. But knowing what um, you know about Marjorie uh, from listening to the show, <laughs> do you think it'd be a good idea if she yeah, tried frying probably, a turkey or probably not? Probably not. Probably not. No. Um, well, you know, you just have to be prepared for it. It's just not okay. one of those things that you you do on the on the whim of a moment. Yeah. Uh, it's I like one I... of those things that you you prepare for and it, and Got you it. take all your safety precautions for. Excellent. It, you yeah, know? it was uh, not for me. Ken, thank you. Would, that was excellent and very, that. very helpful. I'd like to try one at some point. I really would. It's, who told us that they fry their turkey? I just told you. I think Shirley goes Shirley to Young. a thing. Yeah. I'm pretty sure most years where they fry the turkey, but I don't, I don't really know. You know, lots of people have said that, 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 that the pandemic has changed everything for them. They're mm. not doing these big, huge things anymore. They're not doing these huge uh, turkey things anymore. They're having a more relaxed We heard what Fauci said, though. Fauci said if you're fully vaccinated, then go for it. I mean, that essentially was Dr. Fauci's message, don't you think, in the last couple of days? 
Uh, yeah, 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 and uh, I think everyone feels much more assured to be surrounded by people so. who are fully vaccinated. Anyway, by the way, we're going to continue this discussion at the end of the show after John King because it's obviously a really important one. To, <laughs> no, it is to a lot to a lot of you. It is. It is. Okay, coming up, we're going to talk with Trenny Kusnerik, an anchor reporter with NBC Sports Boston, about a, a lot of good sports stories, including the New England Patriots on the rebound. She's coming up next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Mark Regan and Jim Browdy. Joining us now is Trenny Kuznerik. Trenny's an anchor and reporter with NBC Sports Boston and a BPR contributor. Good morning, Trenny Kuznerik. How are you? We are good. Hey, Thank we you. are good, Trenny. Great to talk to you. Um, so, Trenny, um, I wanted to ask you about the, what's going on uh, with this great ch- tennis star from China, Peng Shui, who, of course, reported that she'd been sexually assaulted by one of the leaders uh, in the Communist Party and now seems to be under duress. Give us the update. Yeah, so it's, a, it's um, as things often are um, in China, uh, it's an interesting story that now has a twist where they're saying, oh, she's fine, she's okay, look at her, and, and we're not really buying it. So what happened was Peng Shui, um, accused um, someone that she worked with uh, within the um, uh, the um, a former vice premier of China. She accused him of sexually assaulting her um, at his home three years ago. She also was forthright and said that they did have an on and off consensual relationship. Now, the, the age difference here is about 40 years. He is now 75. She is now 35. Oh. And But after she brought these accusations to light, Suddenly, you didn't hear from her anymore. You didn't see her on any Chinese social media. She was fairly active. Um, And she disappeared um, from public life for more than a week. Um, And then all of a sudden, um, as more and more prominent individuals, Billie Jean King, Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, Martina Navratilova, start coming out and starting this, um, you know, sort of online social movement of where is she? Well, lo and behold, suddenly she does a video conference with the International Olympic Committee on Sunday. Oh, I'm fine. I'm just hanging out at home, spending time with my family. Um, But I think to their credit, the, um, the Women's Tennis Association um, has said, hold on a second here. Why can't we talk to her? Uh, why are you still keeping us from her, keeping us from her? Why is she still not on social media? Why? Well, you know, there are red. There are some red flags um, that I don't think they necessarily trust the Chinese government that they are being forthright that she really is safe and not being coerced because she now, of course, has um, backtracked those accusations. Um, and that she's not being forced to say these things and say that she's okay and say that she made up the accusation without due process from the Women's Tennis Association. And again, this this to me is a positive of this story. Both the WTA and the ATP, which is the men's circuit, has threatened to pull their events from China, a very lucrative market for the sport of tennis, um, if they don't feel... Um, that they are doing an adequate job of vetting this story and looking into her accusations. You know, uh, I, we've had this discussion with you before, and for those who don't know, Trenny uh, does the Olympics uh, for NBC, uh, obviously did curling, does tennis, that sort of stuff. Uh, it, 
Is there ever any serious discussion of what I'm sure we've talked to you about, about permanent locations for the winter and summer games so you don't have to deal with the politics of Sochi? And it's not only Peng Shui. There's the issue that I think Biden mentioned the other day when he said there might be a diplomatic boycott, meaning yeah. diplomats, not athletes. This genocide of the Uyghurs, this these the Muslims in in yeah, the China. Muslim mayor, but yeah, the I Muslim mean the notion that, that Beijing is going to be able to have this celebration uh, in the face of this is really sort of, and we're all going to watch. Uh, sort of, a, is there ever serious talk by the IOS International Olympic Committee about permanent I mean, not locations? That I, or not no? that I'm aware of. Um, not that I have read. I mean, obviously, you know, I am not privileged to no, those I, conversations I, 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 within NBC. I think it would be, you know, I think I've said this on the show before. To me, the to, the best way moving forward from an economic standpoint, but also just again, and, and listen, can you limit all human rights atrocities? I'm sure there are countries, and I know this from talking to friends who are not from here originally or um, split time here and internationally. It's not exactly like they could just plop them in L.A. or New York and mm-hmm. people abroad would say, oh, well, the United States is, so you right. know, a beacon of light for human rights, but we certainly don't have some of the issues that some of the countries that the the games have taken place in more recently, um, particularly Russia and China. I I think the best way to do it, Jim, I'm with you. You pick a a single location for the summer games. Let's call it London because London seems to have the infrastructure. And it was one, I think that didn't, wasn't an absurd amount of cost. Uh, You know, you pick somewhere maybe in Canada, maybe in in Sweden or Switzerland or Italy or something for the winter games. And then I say that that location hosted. But I always thought it would be very cool to still have other countries be the quote unquote host country. So where you still infuse your own different cultures every four years Mm -hmm. or every two, I guess, if you if you go on the, the, the summer versus winter. And so you still get that sort of international feel and flair, but you do it without a cultural burden, a human rights burden, but and also an economic burden on those countries. I just don't know that that'll ever happen because they've never done it that way. And we know how quickly people move from things that they have done forever. By the way, for whatever it's worth, if people want to read fabulous work, Andrew Zimbalist, who is a, an economics professor at Smith, uh, he is pretty much, we've had him on the world expert on the World Cup and the Olympics and how it totally bankrupts the nation's that end up uh, uh, bidding for them. And that's one of the reasons why the Russias and Chinas of the world that weren't worried about their populace coming on board are winning these things. You should, And he wrote a book with Chris Dempsey about 2024 and almost coming to Boston. It's worth reading. We're talking to Trenny uh, Kuznerik. Um, Trenny, Ennis Cantor, he's uh, a Turkish-American. He's been very courageous in criticizing uh, politics in his own country, putting his family, um, who, many of whom are still there, in precarious situation. Now he has been criticizing uh, Michael Jordan. He's a big uh, human rights kind of guy. Here he is calling out Jordan, of course, the basketball legend, uh, on CNN on Sunday. Michael Jordan has not done anything for the black community because he cares too much about his shoe sales uh, uh, all over the world and uh, America. So I feel like we need to call out th- these athletes and not be uh, scared of uh, who, uh, who they are. You know, he, he's been critical of, of fellow athletes before. Tell us what the reaction has been to this and the backstory. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, not only has he been critical of Michael Jordan, but prior to that, he was very critical of LeBron James, you know, in light of so this all started. I mean, obviously, we've, we've, also, we've always known that he has spoken out from personal spoken out about from personal experience um, 
you know, the stifling of free speech, uh, human rights violations and whatnot under um, the Erdogan regime in Turkey um, to the point, you know, where I think his father has been or is still a political prisoner. Um, his his uh, passport visa has been revoked and removed by Turkey. He's sort of a man without a country um, to the point where I, when he was playing in the United States not long ago, there were questions about whether or not he'd be able to travel to Canada. Oh, I forgot um, that. Because, right. because yeah. he, he may, they, they didn't, they feared for his safety, uh, whether or not the Turkish government would come after him. He feels most safe here in the United States. Um, recently, though, he has taken on um, and criticized, he's criticized China. Um, and that had some blowback that she took Celtics games off the air for a time in China because of Ennis Cantor, which is, if anyone knows anything about the NBA and its Chinese influence, it is a huge market for the NBA. They make billions of dollars annually, um, on fans and merchandise and streaming and broadcast rights in China. Um, he then went on to criticize LeBron James, uh, for having a deal with Nike, um, and not looking, you know, uh, more into their own human rights violations, their relationship with China, their silence on um, what happens in that country politically. And then this weekend on Sunday night, he goes on with Pamela Brown on CNN and says all these things about Michael Jordan that, you know, here is someone who backs with his money, but not his mouth that he doesn't speak up and try to do more for um, the black community in Chicago and beyond in the United States. Michael Jordan, to the best of my knowledge, has not responded to his criticism, but LeBron James, uh, I'm sure you guys know this or maybe you don't, but the, the, the uh, Celtics played the Lakers Friday night in Boston. Um, and LeBron James was asked about it post game after his team lost <laughs> to the Celtics um, on, on Friday night. And, you know, LeBron James said that he wasn't even going to spend his energy on um, on Ennis Cantor. And he did say, and I, and I have to side with LeBron James here on this. He said, you know, I passed Ennis Cantor in the hallway and he looked at me and didn't say anything. You know, if he wants to call me out, pull me aside and let's have a conversation about it. Don't just call me out on Twitter or on something and then not have a, you know, a face to face. You know, he used the term, you know, be a man, which is a, a phrase I hate. Um, I would just say be, be an adult, be a grown up. Um, if you have an issue with me, pull me aside and let's talk about it. And he didn't do that when he had the opportunity and the Lakers were in town. So he certainly isn't someone who's afraid to jump into the fray. At one point this season, he actually felt like maybe his playing time was being um, affected. He wasn't getting enough playing time because of his comments on China. Ime Udoka, the head coach of the Celtics, said that's absolutely not it. It's just a rotational thing. And he has actually since played more often and more frequently, in part because they've just had some injuries. But I think this is a guy who realizes, to be quite frank, that his he is not going to leave his mark as a, as a basketball player so much as that he's going to leave his mark as um, you know an activist. And for as long as he has a platform as big as this, he's going to use it, even if it means taking off a whole bunch of people in his own sport. Uh, I, you know, I didn't know about the thing where uh, LeBron uh, had said he should have said it to me personally. And I totally agree if that's true. Having said that, Cantor is really used the platform 
yes. in the most courageous way, considering that he knows what kind of blowback he's going to get from the league, as you say, from fellow players. I'm a huge admirer of his. Yeah. And, and, and it should be noted, he did give LeBron James, in that interview about Michael Jordan, he did give LeBron James credit. He said, you know, I know I have criticized him about his ties to China, but here is someone who has not been afraid to use his voice to help lift up his own community. Good. And Michael Jordan should look at that as an example and, and be that person. You know, uh, to me, this Ennis Cantor is an example of what all of us should be more is a little bit guided by, you know, these kind of moral issues instead of the money issues all the time. But yeah. I'm struck by the contrast between the NBA and the NFL. Um, you know, Colin Kaepernick, as we all know, took a knee and hasn't played since. Um, there seems to be a higher tolerance for getting involved with politics in the NBA. Yeah, and you know what, Marjorie, I, I mean, I have theories as to why. I mean, I think in large part, um, you know, football is by and large still, while 70% of the players on the field um, are, are, are Black or African American, um, most of your coaching staffs, uh, most of your head coaches, all of your owners, with the exception of Shad Khan, uh, who owns the Jaguars, um, are, are 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 white white men. Um, and so, I, in the NBA, it's slightly more diverse ownership, not as much, but certainly in the coaching ranks, general managers, um, head coaches, and, uh, and also just your audience, right? So, I, I think you're speaking to a different audience. You're speaking to a younger audience a more diverse audience that it, that is, I think more in that bucket of being socially conscious and, and socially justice focused. Whereas something like the NFL is a little more split and you may, you know, you may lose endorsement dollars or fans um, depending on what you speak out about. You know, your big picture analysis and response to Marjorie may be true, but Marjorie, there's some wonderful local exceptions. I had Devin McCordy on TV That's with me right. a couple of weeks right. ago That's a very talking good point. about William Allen, who he believes is serving almost 30 years in yep. prison for a crime he didn't commit. The McCordy brothers and Matthew Slater were involved in uh, that DA campaign, the ACLU. In fact, they moderated a debate in the in the Rachel Rollins case, I believe, in a jail in Massachusetts. So the inmates could talk about this. No, this that's too. a very good point. So there are some wonderful exceptions to the rule that you two are uh, talking about. And, and right I do here th- in town that, in particular. And to that point, Jim, I do think not everyone does it as publicly, right? Like not every person uses their voice or their stature to go on Twitter or Instagram or yeah. TikTok or CNN you know, to speak their mind about something. Some of them do more, a lot, a lot of players in the NFL do a lot of grassroots work within the communities in which they were raised and now play in to help build up those communities. I mean, almost every single week I get, a, you know, a press release to your point, Jim, from, you know, from the Patriots talking about another Patriots player who is hosting some sort of fundraiser or food drive or clothing drive, takes kids in a certain part of the city, certain socioeconomics and helps, you know, because they grew up that way and they give back to those same communities. So it's not always, Marjorie, I'm with you. I guess I'm going to get really frustrated. Well, I guess the difference is- Use a public platform, but I, I, I think for some people, they're not comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, you know, they simply can't. Um, maybe they don't feel like they can eloquently speak on a topic enough, but they're still doing something. And it's not- just. 
because we don't see it doesn't mean that word. I guess the difference done. is this guy is speaking truth to power. Use the overused word. Yes. And, and right in yeah. everybody's face. And I guess that's what Who's I think. opposed to fundraising is your point. Yes, yeah, exactly. And and the same thing with Colin Kaepernick. So that's that's the difference. Yeah, the Ka- the Kaepernick cancer thing is 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 a perfect juxtaposition of where it's tolerated in one league to very vocally speak out against some someone or something, including two of the biggest stars in your league. Uh, and one of your biggest, I mean, could you imagine if a player of, and let's be honest, Ennis Cantor is not LeBron James. Ennis right. Cantor isn't Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. He's not, to put it, he's not a star. So, you know, Jalen Brown's thing, another it, pretty outspoken character, yeah. too, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, too, like Jalen Brown is sort of, you know, he's an all star and he, you know, he's got, he's yeah. shopping himself yeah. around yeah. for a shoe deal, all these things that Cantor isn't. And yet he still uses his voice. Like he has a lot more to lose than, than say, a LeBron James. So, uh, by the way, we intended to talk about David Ortiz and the Hall of Fame ballot next, but since time is running out, Marjorie really wants to talk about potatoes with you. So, <laughs> yes, Marjorie Start wants to talk potatoes. Marjorie. Well, you know, um, Bill Belichick, you know, that uh, I, I have been critical of, not for baseball reasons, but more for political reasons. But apparently... Um, football. He coaches football. He coaches football. <laughs> what did I say? Baseball. Close enough. He coaches football. But but I, I kind of liked uh, him in a, in, a, in, a, uh, in a radio interview on EEI talking about his fondness for all things having to do with potatoes. Tell Beautiful, us about it. Actually. I, it's actually, I love this. We used it at the end of our show yesterday because it was so unbelichek like that. Even when someone asked him what his favorite Halloween candy was, he was like, I like all Halloween candy. I love candy. <laughs> but this time he got like very passionate on the Greg Hill show in the morning about his love for all types of potatoes. He this, says, I actually, love scallop too. potatoes. I love baked potatoes. <laughs> and I like them au gratin. I like a mash. And then he goes, starch me up. Starch and me now, up. like, everyone is Pretty like, great that, line. Should, that is going to be my Thanksgiving theme. Starch me up. And yesterday, I could not get the Rolling Stones song out of my head. Yeah, like, exactly. Mixed in with starch me up. Yeah. And start me up. That's but I do good. love that, like, every once in a while, we get this, like, little glimpse of Bill Belichick, and you're like, oh, you're not a crusty old robot. Cool. <laughs> no, I sort of like that, too. So we do have a minute left. Uh, David Ortiz, uh, I, I think you can say, was credibly accused of using an illegal substance, and it was leaked improperly. On There's some players, the Barry Bonses of the world and Roger Clemens of the world, as great as they were. Uh, who most people think have a small chance, if a chance at all, to get into the Hall of Fame. My take from afar is David Ortiz, one of the clutchest hitters ever, is perceived in a different way by the people who vote for the Hall of Fame. Is that is that a fair statement? I think it is. It is. Well, for a couple of different reasons. One, he was never caught again, right? So you do have to take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. You have to take into consideration that Rob Manfred – came to Boston when he was retiring and when it's the commissioner of baseball and basically cleared Ortiz and said, listen, there were some sketchy things in that first report. It shouldn't have been released. He shouldn't be held against him. He was not a a PED user. Unlike saying Alex Rodriguez, who was caught like multiple times during his career, Mm -hmm. or Manny Ramirez. I don't know if David Ortiz will be a first ballot hall of famer. That is like reserved for a certain like just population in baseball. But I think eventually guys he'll get in. Um, You know, it's rare. He's mostly a DH. So that's going to work against him, but also, and this is so awful, but we're all human beings. I don't have a vote by the way. 
he was he was like while he could be surly he was also kind of fun and easy to deal with i think you're right you know and he had this personality where he was larger than life and he had all these big you know massive hits and big moments and that fair or unfair i think factors in whether people are willing to admit it or not yeah, I, I I totally buy your analysis, and I think the nice guy thing matters not. But having said that, one of the he is one of the greatest clutch, clutch players in those years that I've ever. I don't care seen. that he was just a DH. Like the yeah, Red Sox are not the Red Sox without David Ortiz. There's no DH and in the me, Hall of Fame, is there? Or is no, there, there is. Uh, oh, I'm forgetting. Okay, his name. whoever Hold he is. On. Okay. And when you say it, you'll be like, oh, yes. So Edgar, Martinez. Edgar, Edgar Martinez. Edgar Martinez. Martinez. Okay. So yes. he'd be Edgar second. Martinez. Very good, okay. Trenny. That was very impressive. Hey, Trenny, uh, starch Marjorie up. Uh, happy <laughs> Thanksgiving. Yeah. Did you guys get my mayoral question? I got my We actually asked it. We did. And we're, we asked it uh, several weeks ago. And we're going to ask it again if yes, people stay tuned wavelength. around vaccination mandates as soon as the mayor joins us. So stay tuned. Be well, Trenny. Thanks so much for well, your listen, time. guys. Have you a too. nice Thanksgiving. Bye, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Yes, absolutely. Trenny Kuznarek is an anchor and reporter with NBC Sports Boston and a BPR contributor. Thanks again to Trenny. As, as Jim just alluded to, Boston Mayor, the newly elected Michelle Wu, is here for her first Ask the Mayor. She's next with us on Boston Public Radio. If you want to call, the number is 877-301-8970. The email is bpr at wgbh.org. You can tweet us at Boss Public Radio. Michelle Wu is next. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, an inaugural Ask the Mayor with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu one week into her term. We'll touch on her first action on her Green New Deal, plans for the free tea, and whatever crosses your mind. Have a question for the mayor? Give us a call or send us an email. Then legendary sports reporter from the Boston Globe, Dan Shaughnessy, with his latest book, Wish It Lasted Forever, all about covering the Boston Celtics during Larry Bird's legendary 13 seasons, where sports reporters could actually have a beer with players. Then John King will catch us up on everything going on in D.C. before we reopen the lines for Talking of Turkey with you, all that and more. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. GBH. Hello again, Jim. You know what it is? It is Ask It is Ask the Mayor. It is Ask the Mayor. And we are joined by the new mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu. You can reach the mayor. You can either ride the T and hope you'll bump into her, or (laughs) you can call her at 877-301-8970, tweet her at BOS Public Radio, or email her at bpr at wgbh.org. 
Michelle Wu, congratulations. Thank you. It's great to be back in person. I'm yeah, here I know. Yeah. I know. It is. It, we're just getting used to it. It's so wild that people <laughs> are actually here in the studio. But anyway, let, let's start with something you said um, the night you were elected. You spoke about how, and you wrote it in the, in, the, in the Globe, too, how when you first came into City Hall with your family, this big some of us, not that attractive. Kind oh, of it's a gorgeous building. Gorgeous building, okay. <laughs> a little cold, maybe. You kind of felt intimidated, and I'm wondering how it is to walk in as the head honcho, you know? You run the place now, Michelle Wu. How different was it to go up to that spectacular office in there and everything else? I've loved City Hall for a while now. It's It's been a number of years that I have been exploring every back hallway and office um, but to come in now when I get off the, the tea in the morning and stream into the building with all the rest of our workforce, it's incredible. I, I just, I'm so humbled, so excited. And some days I, I just can't believe it. The, the work that we get to do and all the issues that we've been talking about for a decade now and, and then 14 months on the campaign trail, we get the chance to actually just roll up our sleeves and get to it. You are you nervous? I mean, this is you. The, the good news is you got a mandate. The bad news is you got a mandate, and everybody <laughs> knows exactly what you stood for. It, does this not cause some anxiety in you, or are you just plowing ahead? It's the beauty of our of our electoral system is that you can either choose to run, trying to win, and say what you need to say in different rooms, and usually end up saying not too much at all to offend anyone, or you put out big ideas. And then if you earn the support of people across the city, then you get the, the chance and the responsibility to, to try to get that done. Did Marty Walsh call you? Have you spoken to Walsh since the election? Yeah, I've spoken to him. We actually were just together um, last weekend packing Thanksgiving boxes at one of the food pantries in Mattapan. Did you ask him who he voted for? I did not ask him. <laughs> Uh, we know who his mother voted for. That's why I'm asking the uh, the question. We're talking to Michelle Wu. If you want to talk to her, the number is 877-301-8970. You know, yeah, one last thing before we get to the emails and the calls, uh, Mayor Wu. We, we know you work for Elizabeth Warren, so I assume she, you, you were, she was obviously a mentor of yours. But I'm wondering if there's anybody else in politics you look to mm. to kind of form your philosophy. I am... Lucky to have worked for two people in politics in my life, Senator Warren, in her very first campaign. And to me, she is just the embodiment of telling it like it is and deciding that we're going to take on those big fights. I also had the chance to work for Mayor Menino when I was just starting out. And that was that was some of my, my first days in city government were at his side. And to me, he there's no better reminder of what it means to truly serve the people, to know every corner of the city, and to love every every inch of Boston. Um, and of course, I got to serve alongside our Congresswoman, Ayanna Presley, and she every day is the banner uh, holder for what it means to fight and, and lead with your values every step of the way. Our number is 877-301-897. I wasn't going to ask the first substantive question on this, but in light of the fact when you were talking to Marjorie, I looked at what was hanging around your neck, and there is a, a oh, little token, a T token, token, yep. token there. Uh, I am amongst those who said, I'll tell you, this woman promised the free tea. This is going to be a heavy lift. I don't know where she's. We spoke to Governor Baker <laughs> about it. He was not very supportive, as you know, of funding this thing. And then all of a sudden, 
you uh, say, uh, I want $8 million of federal money, the ARPA money, to go to uh, free 23, 28, and 29. 28's been free for a while. For uh, two years, Andrea Campbell, who ran against you, uh, stood in the way of this, at least temporarily, saying we think we need a hearing, we, don't, we shouldn't just move on this rapidly. Are you convinced that there'll ultimately be council approval and those three lines will be free for the next two years? Yes, in fact, we are having a hearing in a couple days, and then the council should take this up at their next meeting. You know, I think it's it's just a, an example of what we can do at the city level if we truly decide to. This was our first full day in office where I, I signed that and, and filed the appropriations order. This will be life-changing, as the 28 bus already has been for so, so many families. But to do a pilot for just a few months, which was all that was possible at that point, really means that... The vast majority of people might not have heard about it, might not have had the chance to rearrange their schedules or make big life decisions. Doing it this way with a full two years, just like how Lawrence did it as they've moved to implement free public transportation in their city, this is what's going to really show us how big of an investment, how big of a return we get on this investment. Are you concerned at all about uh, Councillor Campbell's slowing this thing down, or are you okay with it? No, not at all. Uh, In fact, I had been hoping to have a hearing so we could explain everything, so I'm very honored that the council was moving to even consider accelerating that grant, but um, we are all for making sure that everyone has full information. In fact, Councillor Campbell joined us at our press conference at Ashmont Station announcing this the next morning and was fully in support as well. Our number again is 877-301-8970. The email is bprwgbh.org, and you can tweet us at Boss Public Radio. Let us go to the calls. Let's start first with Ken in Roslindale. You're on with Mayor Michelle Wu. Hey, Ken. Hello. Hello, Jim Hi. Marjorie. Hey. Mayor Wu. Good morning. Uh, I must admit, uh, I was so happy when you won. You were one of the first ones I actually campaign for. Oh, thank you, Ken. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. <laughs> it's not embarrassing. It's I'm fine, I'm so excited Ken. you're calling. It's fine. What's your question for the mayor, Ken? Uh, mine is about uh, uh, rent control. I mean, you know, she put down a basic thing about it, but, uh, you know, I'd like to know if there's more substance to it at the moment, or if that's coming out soon, what she's going to roll out. Ken, thanks for the call. Mayor? Thank you, Ken. Um, Great to know that you are a neighbor, and I'm so thankful that that you took the time to call. Um, You know, what we heard on the campaign trail, knocking on door after door, out at community events, is that Boston is becoming too expensive for way too many of our families to be able to stay here. We need to do something about housing costs. We need to do something about displacement of our families, and we have to throw everything we have at it right now. So, Right. We're in a historic moment where there's federal funding available to build more affordable housing, to boost home ownership so that people can stay in their homes. And we need to make sure that those who are at immediate risk of getting pushed out have some relief as well. So this will take legislation that we would push from the city to the state. I need to make sure that we're working in close partnership with all of our colleagues across these levels of government and in the advocacy community to get a proposal together. But we've already started to have some of those early conversations. Did you have that? We know you met with Governor Baker for, I think, roughly an hour the other day. Did this come up? We brought it up with him a few days before you were last uh, with us. 
And as you know, he's not a huge fan of rent control. He'd ultimately either have to sign something or be overridden by the legislature. Did you have, was that, did that come up in the conversation? It did. Yeah, it was a great conversation, an important starting point for so many of the big issues that we will need to be working on together. And the governor shared in that conversation what he's shared publicly, which is that his own personal experience with an old style of rent control uh, wasn't positive in his mind. I think there's a wide range of what we can do at the city level when cities are given the power to really explore all the nuances of how we can protect our residents, keep people in their homes. It doesn't have to look like how it's looked in the past. And in fact, the places where it's working today across the country, it looks very different. And it's in partnership with other tools and other policies that are meant to continue growing the supply of housing as well. When do you expect to have meat on the bones? When will people like Ken see the details of a proposal? We're still in the phase of making sure we're building out our team, right? I'm, I'm never going to come at these issues expecting that as one person sitting in an office that I'll be able to get done as much as I can. My job is to really empower a whole team across City Hall and in partnership with our communities to put the meat on these bones and to move this across the different levels of government. So we're building out our cabinet, meeting with department heads, and um, so thankful that on the housing front, Chief Sheila Dillon has been willing to stay, just no one else with the institutional knowledge and expertise and passion um, that, that she has built up in our city. And so between her continued leadership and the ideas that we put out on the campaign trail, we'll be moving mo- moving shortly. We're talking to newly elected Mayor Michelle Wu. Mayor Wu, um, you, a lot of people have called you the America's first climate change mayor. So talking about meat in the bones. What are you talking about? I mean, I've read electrified school buses. I've read meeting climate goals that didn't that the previous mayor couldn't meet. You know, twenty thirty Boston, all that kind of stuff. Elaborate. What are you talking about in for climate for Boston? Yeah, I am thirty six years old. I have two kids who are four and six, and I've seen through just their few short years alive on this planet how much we are spiraling into a dangerous situation for their future. The issue that we're going to live the next hundred years through as humankind is climate. Where is it safe to live? Where are there torrential storms that threaten us or waters that are flooding up past our doorsteps or heat that is stifling and and harming our communities? Where's the pollution from the way that we've made decisions around transportation? And all of that disproportionately sits on black and brown communities. All of it exacerbates the disparities that we already see in Boston. And so to live our fullest, to have every one of our young people reach their fullest potential, we need to be moving quickly on climate. Just yesterday, I signed my very first ordinance. It was an ordinance that I had actually been working on on it as an issue for six years on the council and um, had filed in partnership with Councilor Lydia Edwards and Councilor Matt O'Malley. It was really exciting to be joined by activists, advocates, Senator Markey, Bill McKibben, and so many climate leaders in Boston yesterday as we took a very concrete step to say Boston's money won't be going to further enrich fossil fuel companies or private prisons or other harmful industries. By the way, is your six-year-old still angry with you that you made him get a COVID shot, or was he okay with that? You forced him on <laughs> Saturday, didn't you? He was very excited, actually. I, I guess they've to been talking it? about it in school. Yes, I, I talked with him extensively beforehand. He said he wanted to get vaccinated. They were all kind of this. 
comparing in school who had been vaccinated and who haven't been vaccinated yet. So they know what's happening. He's in first grade now, and he was uh, very brave. He didn't <laughs> flinch, and then afterwards took a deep breath, and then, and then got right back in the bouncy house. I wish I could say the same about me, actually. <laughs> but just before we get back to the cause, like what? I guess, I guess my question is, what do you think you can do that would start to make a difference that isn't going to cost zillions of dollars and et cetera? Well, okay. So there's a couple points here. One is that there are a lot of what some would call small things that city government can do that will have a huge impact. Just planting more trees is in fact, one by one by one, the most effective technology we have to fight climate change, absorbing the water, cleaning the air, bringing down temperatures. Our plan is to double the number of street trees in Boston over these next four years. Converting to electric school buses will get Diesel pollution from 300 diesel buses that are still on our roads, spewing that pollution into our kids' lungs, into the bus monitors' lungs, into our neighborhoods. There's now federal funding available through some of the federal legislation specifically targeting electric vehicles and electric school buses. And Senator Markey's been a great partner on that. These are the small things. Big picture, though, you're right. It will take dollars. It will take a lot of dollars. But how I'm hoping everyone starts to see this is that if we don't put those dollars in now, we will need to pay far more than that after that next storm comes, after the entire subway has been flooded, after lives have been lost, as we saw in New York and other cities nearby with hurricanes. So we're we're going to be paying one way or the other. Now is actually the most cost-effective, practical, and feasible way to do it up front. That's the voice of Michelle Wu, the new mayor of Boston. She's here for Ask the Mayor to take your calls. Jacob from Roxbury, you're the next person to talk to the mayor. Welcome. Jacob. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you very much for taking my call. Sure. Um, first, congratulations, uh, Michelle. Thank I, you. I've met you at community events and over the years, and I, of all the candidates, I just feel like you were always out there and supporting things going on in the community. And so I, I'm, I'm thrilled that you that, that you won. Thank um, you so much. So my question is, as a professor of epidemiology at Boston University. Uh, my name is Jacob Bohr. Um, I'm very concerned about the current wave of infections with COVID going into the winter. When you look at Europe, they have relatively high vaccination rates, but it's become the epicenter of the global pandemic. Um, Governor Baker's language around this is telling people in Massachusetts not to worry about it, to have normal Thanksgiving, that we've sort of done what we can do. But we still have communities with low vaccination rates, even in Boston. And if we're going to sort of let it rip and not try to control infections, we need to let communities know so that people can go out and get vaccinated and boosted if they haven't already. And really not to be sensational about it, but people who don't get vaccinated or boosted are going to be more likely to die this winter. So, Jacob, and if so, I may, what's your question for the mayor? My question is, what is the administration going to do to make sure people understand the urgency and the stakes and to make sure that vaccination is accessible and equitable to everybody? and to make sure that frontline workers are protected during the winter surge. Jacob, thank you. Thank you, Jacob. And I'm I'm really glad you called on this. I've been this this has been on my mind the last couple of days and and going back and forth with our Boston Public Health Commission. I am honored and grateful that Dr. Basola Ojukutu, who's the head of that commission, is now serving as a member of the cabinet. So we have a public health expert and um, infectious disease doctor herself squarely within uh, the cabinet helping to make decisions and, and advise on this. We are seeing a surge in Boston already. 
week over week, we are seeing uh, the numbers headed into the anticipated winter surge and the holiday season when so many families are coming together and friends and people indoors and in groups. The message has to be, please get vaccinated. That is why it's important. it was important for me to take my son now that we have eligibility for children ages five, you know, as young as five years old. That's a huge chance for all of us to take a big step in protecting all of our communities and to get our boosters. I'm a couple days away from being eligible from that six month mark of getting my booster. And I'll, I'll do that as quickly as I can. But we need to make sure that this is not we're not that we're not easing off, that we're not letting it rip because within our school buildings, within our public spaces indoors, this is still very, very much a concern. And we're monitoring it very closely. We continue to see disparities, not just in vaccination rates, but in the um, impacts as well. And so we will do everything we can to make infrastructure available for vaccinating our young people, for give, getting those boosters out in the community. But we need everyone's help in spreading that word because we're, we're not seeing uptake, frankly, as quickly as it, as it could be and, and should be, especially when it comes to young people. Jacob, thank you for the call. On a related note, uh, Mayor Wu, last time you were with us, well, actually, other than Election Day, the week before the election, Marjorie just come back from New York City visiting her new grandchild. And I mentioned to you that she had every restaurant she went into, every performance venue, Vax was mandated. And I said to you, uh, uh, we don't have that situation here, should we? And you said, yes, we should. And you went on to say that it's unfair. I'm putting words in your mouth. It was essentially what you said. The performance venues on their own have to be making these decisions. Government should, quote, step up and say we are good to set clear standards across the board. Are you going to do this? And if you are, when are you going to do it? Yeah, we're following the data very closely and thinking about every tool that the city of Boston has. I still very much think that we should be taking all possible action to protect our community members, to protect customers and those who might be wanting to attend these events, the way to head off a shutdown is for everyone to get vaccinated and to be protected. Um, and so we're looking internally as well as externally at all of the options available, working in close conjunction with Dr. Ojukutu and the Public Health Commission on what those standards will look like, and to do so in a way that would, again, um, not put the burden on our small business owners and, and organizational um leaders, but really ensure that the public health infrastructure is doing that work. But is your expectation that there will be a vaccination mandate at some point in the near future to go into a performance venue or a restaurant or that sort of thing? Is that your expectation? We're looking at cases very closely and the policies will, will follow that very closely. But I you know, nothing to announce today. We're talking to Michelle Wu, 877-301-8970. Shuleka from Boston. Hope I got that right, Shuleka. Shuleka, hi. Yeah. Hi. Um, hello. Um, first, congratulations, um, Mayor Thank you. Wu. Um, so I am a parent of a Boston Public Schools elementary student. I am also a co-founder of a group called BPS Families for COVID Safety. We are especially concerned about mealtimes when students are unmasked and seeing that the Curly had to close for 10 days um, due to a COVID outbreak. We wanted to know if you will commit to work with Boston Public Schools to increase safety during mealtimes by supporting schools to hold meals outdoors, in classrooms, or if meals have to be in cafeterias, install air quality monitors and other measures to ensure ad adequate ventilation and filtration. 
Thank you so much, Suleika. I absolutely would love to connect, and I think we can do so through the producers and, oh, and station we'll, here. Yes, so, okay, yeah. so we'll get we'll get set up afterwards. Um, yes, absolutely. That as we're headed into the winter, any place that there might be spread of COVID and this virus, we need to be taking precautions. I would say also, though, that the underlying issue here is that we need to make sure that all of our young people are vaccinated to be doing that through our schools, to be working so that every adult that is in our school buildings is also vaccinated will be very, very important. And um, and certainly the meal, the meal times on top of that. So like it, don't hang up. One of our producers will put you on hold. We'll take your contact information and the mayor's office will be in touch. Thank you very much for calling. We appreciate uh, it. Uh, Mayor, well, here's an email from Blue Collar Boston. He says, construction workers in the city have had a stable source of income over the past several years with the support of the previous mayor, Marty Walsh. People may know Marty Walsh used to be the head of the Building and Trades Union. Building was, Trades, yeah. I think it was called before he became mm-hmm. the mayor. Anyway, Blue Collar Boston wants to know, are construction workers in Boston going to have similar support from Mayor Michelle Wu? There's a whole lot of work that we need to do in Boston. And so absolutely, I know that our workers have been keeping our economy going, have been building our city. I want us to make sure that we are building in a way that is actually sustainable, though. Right, The way that our city has been headed, the surest way to slow down development and construction in some ways was to keep doing what we had been doing, which is to kind of turn the other way when it comes to the impacts of climate change and not to truly connect affordability and transportation access with all the decisions that we are making. Just thinking about our school buildings alone, though, there's enough work there to rebuild and to renovate our 125 school buildings. Only 30 some of them have modern HVAC systems. Many, many of them were our pre-World War II structures. We need to be building lots more affordable housing. We need to be growing as a city and doing so in a way that we put food on the table with good jobs, but also that people can afford to stay, to live, to thrive in Boston. Uh, our number is 877-301-8970. You know, Mayor, well, one of the things you talked about is you ran a small business in, in Chicago, and you talked about the difficulties for doing anything in, in Boston, whether it comes to building or any kind of the bureaucracy. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I I think you're probably the first person to, to cover that, Marjorie, right back in the day. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Way um, back when. <laughs> I I'm forever shaped by what it meant to be a small business owner, to be the both the cashier and the janitor and the hostess. You know, it was just it was just me and my family running a little tea shop. What it took to get that business open was I mean, it pushed us almost over the edge hoops to jump through, inspections that couldn't get scheduled, one thing after another, just to do something that was going to help not only my family, but the whole community feel safer and have more activity and and a place for families to go. And so I see how much our small businesses add to our communities are really the anchor of, of so much of the activity that we love and enjoy about our neighborhoods. And they've been the first to really struggle during this pandemic. Um, So we need to get those resources out into our neighborhoods. This is where so many of the jobs in Boston are, in small businesses. And a lot of that is just making the room for entrepreneurs to do what they do best, which is to figure out how to put their idea or their product or their service out into the community without all those hoops, without all that red tape holding people back. 
Did you watch all four and a half hours of the mo- Fred Wiseman's uh, The Mayor? <laughs> I'm sorry to say I've not yet even watched one minute. No. <laughs> what is wrong with I mean, you? I've had 10 years of it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to watch. You know, you and know I hear we're not even in it. So. But you know what's – that may be true, actually, which is all that really matters when you're the mayor. Uh, you know what's great about it? Beyond the fact that I, I took away as just a citizen of the community – uh, uh, the plight of small business people, particularly small business people of color in this film, really, I mean, Wiseman, I think a brilliant job. It's a bit tad long, but it is, it's really a, so in your spare time, of which you have none, <laughs> right, well. you can, of course, watch that. We're going to mispronounce your name in Rosalind Day. Is it show or sco? And it's my fault. I apologize. How do you say your name? Uh, it's sco. Hi, sco. Welcome to the show. You're on with Mayor Wu. Uh, thank you. I'd like to ask the same question that I asked Mayor Walsh on this program. Okay. And that and he said that it was way before his time. But the question is, what is the status of the West Roxbury High School? A thirty million dollar empty high school that's not being used. Yeah, thanks, Go. That's a that's a good question that I actually don't have the answer to off the top of my head, but I will get one quickly. I was just talking with our team about making sure that as we're trying to reconfigure some of the facilities and the spaces and grade configurations within the district that we make use of every bit of precious land that we have, that that should stay in education and school use. I mean, as, as you said, a lot of money went into renovating the fields and making sure that this would be a space for young people. Uh, but those, that building did not see those same investments and it's, it's a, a gaping hole in our school constellation here. So um, as we are, you know, my kids are in, in BPS as well. We're always following very closely and, and know the day-to-day stress of what it means when you don't have predictability within the system and you're not sure if this school drops off at fifth grade or sixth grade, where to go from there. And so we need to make sure that there's a, a facilities plan for BPS that really takes into account all of the communities and seats that we need and that all of our kids will have the inspiring, healthy places to learn that they deserve. Sko, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. We're talking with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, and you can too. She's going to be with us till the top of the hour for her first visit as Ask the Mayor. Listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. The number again, 877-301-8970. Email bprwgbh.org, and you can tweet us at Boss Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marguerite. And much more importantly, she is the new mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu. A week in the job. She's here for the inaugural Ask the Mayor. You can contact her at 877-301-8970. By the way, I feel we have to disclose that there was an attempt, I don't know if it's illegal, to uh, bribe. Is that too strong a word? What did you bring <laughs> us? It's not illegal this direction. Well, yes. what did you bring us, uh, this was Mayor a, Wu? a kind offering. Yes. What did you bring us? Twin donuts, of Twin course. Twin donuts. And what right did you expect street, to get right? in return? There's no expectation of Gentle, any special treatment. Correct? nice question. Okay. That's Softball. right. She's an honest woman. There you go. It's rather embarrassing. That's, that's right. Diane in Fairhaven, you are next with the mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu. Welcome. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, first of all, Ms. Mayor, congratulations. I'm proud to be in the state that has you, the mayor of Boston, even though I can't vote for you down here. Thank you, Diane. I'm in Fairhaven. 
You're welcome. I'm in the greater New Bedford area, Fall River, like Marjorie knows. I'm in Fairhaven, about yeah, a mile great from town. New Bedford. Um, yeah, and I've spoken uh, briefly with uh, uh, Mayor Walsh, actually at the library, catching one of your shows, guys, um, nice. about the, the rail coming from Boston down here to the south coast. We are building a huge um, staging area for offshore wind here in New Bedford. So talk about your trade guy there. He can get, they can get down here for jobs as well That's as right. our people can get closer to Boston for tech jobs and all of that. And for decades, it's been on and off and on. It's going to happen. It's not going to, and I just was wondering if it was still on track and if you support so it. It's still on track. Pardon the pun. It's okay. But yes, exactly. And where you're at with that issue. Uh, I know you've got a lot going on. It might be down your list, but I'm just hoping the rail will eventually make it down here. Diane, thanks for the call. We love hearing from you. This is great. And this is a just a really important example of why we're all interconnected and why what happens on the South Coast matters in Boston and vice versa. The ability to get from job opportunities to homes that are affordable to educational opportunities, we're, we're, we're all basically at the mercy of the transportation system in a lot of ways. And so that's why transit, public transit, and continuing to build out our infrastructure has been so important to how I see the city and and the larger region. You know, we are trying to both take down barriers for financial you know, financial barriers when it comes to free fares on bus lines in Boston. But I'm in full support of those larger infrastructure projects that are really an investment across the region for how we can continue to, to be connected in the jobs and, and other opportunities that are here. You're still taking the tea to work? Yes, I took it to this morning. How do you do that? I mean, how do you do that? I mean, without... It's the fastest way. No, no, no I, didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. How are you not inundated with people who want to take your time? Oh, I love it. I mean... Actually, this morning, no one even talked to me at all. I just was on my phone. I did some reading. But um, I, I love when people have something to share or have a question. It's it's a chance to really just cut through, you know, everything that we're talking about in City Hall and really understand what's happening in the community. And so I welcome if, you know, blanket invitation to anyone who sees me on the tee. Please don't feel like what I'm is going it? to Nobody fight. Nobody came up to you today? No. They're not is staring it- at you? I was on one of the shiny new Orange Line trains today, so I think everyone was just enthralled by actually having a nice, smooth ride. So, Mirwa, we're getting some uh, emails about Massachusetts Avenue and Melanie Cass Boulevard, the intersection there, the people that have been living down there in, in tents. They're from two sides, basically. Sarah wants to know what you what you learn from the Mass and Cass clearing and jail court that will guide your policy regarding unhoused Bostonians. Other people are emailing with concern about the neighborhood, you know, the the people that live there, work there, the open drug dealing, the violence, crime, et cetera. Like Shirley Young wrote about, which we talked to her. Yes, she did. And um, including places like the Greater Boston Food Bank, they're spending half a million dollars a year on security. So where are we? Yeah, this is the confluence and overlapping of multiple different crises. And what we see is that it's not just a matter of treatment. It's not just a matter of housing. It's not just a matter of health and and sanitation. It's, It's everything all at once. And as we are watching temperatures drop, it becomes all the more urgent for the city to really be driving forward that vision of how we provide safe, warm, dignified living for everyone who's currently on the streets. Um, The court was discontinued. 
we had seen, you know, this is, again, I, th- I think it's really important that all solutions are on the table. And it was a really important collaboration between the legal system, between county, state, and local government. But it hadn't been a full, true special court that was a diversionary program. In fact, given some staffing and capacity issues, the way I understand it, the judge had only been able to clear warrants issued that were municipal warrants within the city of Boston. And many of the issues had involved other jurisdictions or non-city level warrants that then required people to be sent off to other courts anyway to get their redress and to have that um, situation addressed. And so people were being held way longer than necessary because the capacity wasn't there and because the full powers weren't located there. So now there will be more of a push for medical treatment to be part of a diversionary process at the existing courts. And then when it comes to who is living there on the streets and and how to make sure that we're getting people into shelter, there are empty shelter beds. The problem is that many of these beds still have barriers for people who are actively in substance use, actively experiencing mental illness. Um, There are barriers to getting into those beds. So we need to be moving towards a much more wraparound service included what's called supportive low threshold housing where it's not just a place to sort of go to sleep at night and and store your belongings but 24-hour staffing when it comes to treatment and services and and making sure there's monitoring for people's health situations as well that's what we're moving people into the city's identified many beds that we can partner on the limiting factor here is staffing Our partner organizations provide that 24-hour monitoring, but with the labor shortages everywhere across the city and beyond, we really are seeing um, a a tremendous need for those who have this kind of expertise to come work in these these spaces and help take care of our uh, residents. And if we can solve that staffing piece, we can open up a whole lot more capacity. You know, we had Lindia Downey on the other day from the Pine Street Inn, who obviously they've focused a huge amount of their attention on permanent housing for people. And I know you were talking about, I don't know if you called it this, this 100-day audit, your first 100 mm-hmm. days of, of city-owned uh, uh, property, which it seems to me, as a non-expert in the area, and like you, is the longer-term solution. But that really is longer-term, is it not? A hundred days, you identify, then there's a build-out. That's not something that is a short-term solution. Yeah, right? I would say that that is medium-term, right? We do have some spaces and buildings that are currently very much underutilized, but to retrofit them will take time. And we're and the need right now urgently on the ground is in days, not in months. So we need to get people into safe, warm shelter before it gets cold. The most appropriate spaces for that are those that are already kind of built out as housing and and to be able to get in there quickly again with those wraparound services. Uh, Diane, you're in JP, Jamaica Plain. You're on with the mayor of Boston. That's Michelle Wu. Hi, Diane. Hi, everyone. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I just want to congratulate um, Mayor Wu. I live in Jamaica Plain. I take the orange line. I hope to see you on the T, and I voted for you. So super excited um, to have you leading our city. My, I, I haven't really have a question. Well, it's a question. I'm wondering, uh, Mayor Wu, if you're open to um, conducting a planning study or something to do something about our um, choke-filled streets. Um, there are other cities that prioritize other uses. They have car-free zones. Um, 
we we need land for you know as as you've talked about in the show just now housing better you know new schools and um it would be great if if Boston looked at um redesigning some streets to prioritize other uses that the residents might care more about than driving cars, especially residents like me who bike in the nice weather or take the tea when it's not nice. We're getting a lot of bike emails, by the way. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Diane. Thanks, I com- Diane. completely agree with you that there are there's a need right now for us to make sure we're making the best use of our public spaces. And given that the world now is in a different economy, right, we're still remote in a lot of ways. We are still sheltering and, and quarantining and, and people are, are um, able to zoom into so many conversations and meetings. We need the extra draw for our economy to really bounce back of people to be out in person together, to be supporting our small businesses and having that sense of placemaking and community gathering is really fundamental, not just for health and well-being and community, but also for the dollars and cents and, and getting our economy going again. There are a lot of ways in which I want to make sure our new planning infrastructure lines up with this kind of streets for people approach. At the same time, we are building up alternatives to driving, such as public transportation and cycling and and safe infrastructure for pedestrians as well. This is an issue all across every neighborhood. And um, I'm excited as we're building out our team to be putting people in place who will really be um, pushing Boston to lead on this front. Uh, uh, thank you much for your call. You know, you, you have uh, talked, Mayor Wu, in the last few minutes about some members of your the early formation of your team. Uh, one position that I know has an acting person, Greg Long, obviously, is the police commissioner situation. Two things. One, what's the status of that search? And two, your comments when um, the uh, Mayor Janey redacted or a huge percentage of the internal affairs report on Patrick Rose was redacted was like, I think most people, you said um, the redacted Pat, uh, Rose file leaves far more questions than answers calling for a fully independent investigation. We need to completely overhaul the culture of secrecy that has been revealed again and again. I think something like 16 pages, if I recall at 83. Do you intend to release more of that? What do you plan to do about that? And what are you doing in terms of the search? Okay. So two pieces. Um, One on transparency in general and how we can get more information out. It can't just be on the case-by-case basis when something rises to the level of media attention, then all of a sudden we find a way to work through our processes and and release it. There needs to be a baseline and a culture, again, cultural shift, I'll say, of being open to the public. And, you know, of course, we need to respect people's privacy and and in those legal situations, but we could be doing a lot more and and we will be. A a very important development on this front in terms of this particular case is the establishment of the city's new OPAT office. Mm -hmm. This is the office that is there to provide independent accountability. It has a couple different pieces underneath it to review complaints directly from the public about individual officers or the way that cases were handled, as well as to provide an extra set of eyes Uh, along with internal affairs within the department and how decisions were made and whether there's accountability. That office is still being built up and staffed up. 
I owe them a, a few appointments and the city council owes them a few appointments as well. And once we get that fully up and running, this is squarely with the, the place that will provide that kind of independent oversight for this case and for others. Meaning we may see more of that internal affairs report. Is that correct? That is the hope, yes. Would you like us to see more of it? I would like us to see more of it and and other ones as well. Um, And then on the police commissioner search, I very much want to have public engagement lead this process. And so the plan right now is that we will work to identify a search committee of a few individuals and their first charge even before looking at any candidates, even before interviewing any potential commissioners – will be to go out and seek feedback, do listening sessions in the community, engage key stakeholder groups on what should we be looking for to begin with? What values and parameters and qualifications and skill sets should really drive the search? And then they will dive into the actual sort of meat of of identifying individuals. Do you have a hope for timetable and an appointment? We're already approaching the holiday season, and so community engagement is really tough when it comes to Mm -hmm. people in and out. And so I imagine that will kick off in the new year, and I hope uh, for a very thorough thorough and comprehensive but quick search after that in the next couple months. You know, one of our frequent contributors here, Shirley Leung, she writes a business column for the Boston Globe, wrote a piece about talking about how the skeptics are coming out now about you. She talked about how even though you got more votes than Tom Menino or Mayor Walsh, which I didn't know, congratulations. Uh, you're also the first mother. People, according to Leung's column, we're talking about how you're, you're too lofty, too young, too inexperienced, even though you've been 10 years at the council. Men are visionaries and wonderkins, and women are over their heads. We got two quick emails. I just got one from Christopher saying, if a woman is able to run a home and keep the budget under control, she can run the world. Congratulations, Miss Wu. Also got one from John saying, I don't know. Unions are pretty tough in Boston. The cops, the teachers, everybody else. So how do you address those people that think, you know, you're just just, just too young and too female to handle this big city, Michelle Wu? (laughs) I welcome it because I'm sitting in the seat now. (laughs) Um, You know, it's I think so many of us across the city – especially as barriers have continued to come down only very recently across different political and government leadership posts, but across business posts in Boston as well, across nonprofit and philanthropy, we are seeing a little bit of a sea change all across the city. And I find uh, many kindred spirits in, in those who are the first in different rooms who are used to in every step of our careers hearing this um, taking it in stride and then realizing that, in fact, when you show what a difference it makes, when you can think differently, when you can bring new people into the process, and then when you can show even more results than ever before, then all all of that melts away. And so I grew up never imagining that I could be anywhere near government, much less in elected office. And it's because I didn't see anyone who looked like me. I didn't meet anyone who had ever been voted on or or elected to any office. And so I hope that now if people see that someone like me who grew up pretty introverted, pretty, um, you know, focused on my math and science and other things, that if I can be here and I can help make a little bit of a difference, everyone should be in these seats. Everyone should see themselves as connected to the business of of government and making important decisions about our future. Yeah, we read, everybody, I assume, listening, read this great piece Stephanie Ever wrote about your husband the other day <laughs> uh, and the responsibility he's taken in the family, which is just wonderful and should happen. And uh, we celebrate him. 
Do you not go home at night and say, can you believe I am the mayor of the city? Is there not a piece of that, uh, Mayor Wu? There is. Is there not? It's especially if we are looking back at when we first met, right? I was a economics major from Chicago <laughs> at Harvard and he was a film studies major. We just randomly were at a party together. There was no, I think we both would have put a lot of money on uh, a bet that things would not end up like this, but it's been incredible. I am so, I, you know, every step of what I've been able to do, I owe to Connor and, and our family and, um, to see, you know, this was his very first interview. So even that was a stretch Mm. for him (laughs) this whole time I've been in office. He's never spoken to the media. Um, and to see where we are now is just, it's, it's such a blessing and, such an opportunity, I hope, for, again, people who didn't expect themselves to be in positions of leadership to see what's possible and how much we need that as well. By the way, for those who didn't read the piece, the guy is quitting his jo- has quit his job and is going to essentially take care of the family while Michelle Wu is the mayor of Boston. I mean, it's Kaylin in Inman Square, where my favorite person, that'd be me, lives. Uh, Kaylin, how are you? You're on with the mayor of Boston. Welcome, Kaylin. Hi, everyone. Congratulations, Mayor Wu. Hi. Thank you very much, Kevin. Um, um, so I, the, the recent trials with uh, Kyle Rittenhouse and, of course, the live updates with Ahmaud Arbery are happening around us. And, Mayor Wu, I'm, I'm curious both personally and also professionally what your opinion and reaction is to the verdicts and, and ongoing trials, as well as what your plan is to ensure that the, the black and other, you know, sort of, for lack of a better word, targeted communities in our community, in our um in our city is being prioritized both from a security and supportive standpoint um, uh, to make sure that they are given sort of the fair um, treatment and protection under the law that everybody else has. Kaylin, thank you. Yeah, I am, you know, personally devastated and um, just to see a sense of accountability denied time and again to black and brown communities and to see that, we are still so far from the ideals of, of what this country was founded on, what the city was founded on. You know, in Boston, we are living every day continued disparities across race, across neighborhood. And my charge and what I uh, interpret the the votes that we got, the mandate that we earned in Boston is to redefine those systems is to make sure that in every possible way we are building trust with communities, that we are ensuring representation and a dismantling of white supremacy across not only our systems of public safety and the criminal legal processes, but in every way that we have seen wealth denied generationally or educational opportunity rationed or safe streets and transportation access housing. Um, we are going to bring an equity-focused lens. We're going to continue an equity-focused lens and build on the work of Mayor Janey and others in ensuring that Boston will be able to tell a different story and that we can show what's possible even at the city level. What was your reaction, though, to the Rittenhouse verdict, the not guilties? I spoke out on on um, social media and put out a little a little short statement. It, it was It felt like a punch to the gut. 
You know, Mayor Wu, a lot of people feel punched in the gut about a whole lot of things, particularly nationally. There's a lot of discouragement. I mean, President Biden did get this infrastructure bill through, but it's a lot less than we thought. We don't know. Is it going to be, is it going to be gutted with climate change because of Joe Manchin, because he did a coal company? Is, it, is there going to be any help for child care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I know you just got there, but I'm sure you thought about how mayors can do some things I mean, that's why so, so many progressives were thrilled to see you elected, a sense that mayors can do things that maybe we can't do anymore at the federal level. Do you think about the role of the mayors? Yeah, sometimes it's it's quite overwhelming to just absorb the scope of what we're up against as a world, as a society, right? Our forests are burning, oceans are rising, we see the rise of hate across the country and a pandemic that continues to sit on the shoulders of black and brown communities. And in moments, it, it, it you know, <laughs> there's a lot to do. And when we see delay at the federal level or inaction or in an inability to really reflect the urgency on the ground, I am trying to direct that towards even more force for city government to move quickly because we're in this we're at the local level we are really in a special place where you can do big things by getting the small things right that we can take on big changes around climate and immigration and the housing market and transportation if we are earning people's trust back with every request or or response that's needed on the day-to-day you know what someone call little things in people's lives and being able to earn that trust, to build community, to connect people to each other again is something that I hold most sacred in, in this role. To be able to bring our communities back together to do big things because we understand how much we are all interconnected. You know, on a related note, we only have two minutes left, Jose, from Boston, but you have a related question, so please ask it to the mayor. Hi. Uh, good morning. Um, good afternoon, and congratulations, Ms. Wu. Um, I you. just have a quick question about the uh, status of the uh, Melina Cast trees that they were trying to uh, uh, tear down a few months ago. Uh, there was plans to tear them down, and because you like, uh, you know, you like, you're going to put up trees. I'd like to know what your what the what the status is, or what your opinion is about the Melina Cast trees that they were trying to tear down. Jose, thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we actually had a huge victory for the community and for almost a decade of advocacy on this front when the city withdrew plans it must have been a little almost a year ago a couple months ago at this point almost a year ago to say we are going to have a new plan for the traffic and transportation and infrastructure that's needed that will protect those trees so those trees are staying uh, we fought and and we're standing there alongside advocates who were wrapping themselves around the trees and and making sure we kept this issue front and center for nine years. And um, our new plan will ensure that we are making those transportation improvements while understanding how fundamental environmental justice is, particularly to communities that are most impacted by pollution and air quality. 
Uh, Jose, thanks. Marjorie Egan almost assaulted Mayor Walsh on the topic when he would come in the studio. I want you to know, Mayor Wu. So what are you doing for Thanksgiving, if you don't mind sharing with us? What's your deal? What's I your am plan? doing, I think, six or eight uh, turkey events. I can't yeah. <laughs> wait across the city. We'll start at Pine Street Inn and St. Francis House and do a swing through East Boston and, and other neighborhoods. Um, we we split, so uh, we'll try to spend some time with the in-laws and some time with my mom and um, hopefully get a little breath in between to just chill out on the couch and watch some Netflix. Too. <laughs> well, congratulations. Maybe I'll watch City Hall. How about that? We're thrilled. Uh, <laughs> you <laughs> you might, don't have enough time. Yeah, it goes on a long time. It is very good, but it goes on a long We're time. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for the donuts. And we look forward to seeing you again and again in the future. Thanks so much, Mayor Wu. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very much, Mayor Wu, for being with us. Michelle Wu is the newly elected mayor of Boston. We thank her again for joining us. Coming up. Boston Globe sports writer Dan Shaughnessy, the legendary Dan Shaughnessy, here to discuss his new book, Wish It Lasted Forever, Life of the Larry Bird Celtics. Dan Shaughnessy is next. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And as a lifelong fan of all things Philadelphia, I wasn't even sure I'd like Boston Globe sports writers <laughs> Dan Shaughnessy's latest Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird, Bird Celtics. But boy, was I wrong. Here to discuss the perfect Christmas gift for your friends who still read is Dan Shaughnessy. Dan, congratulations. We love the book. Welcome to the show. Well, I'm just glad you got the book. It was hard to get you the book, and it was right in the book. That's right. <laughs> we got it. And you were yelling at me like it was my I was. fault. I totally, I totally yelled at Marjorie. I, t- I heard. I tell you, I was yeah. shaking in my boots. But anyway. But you know, but, but we should got to go back memory lane here, Marjorie. You and I doing the Thanksgiving show at WTKK at like 1999 or something. That like is absolutely right. And, and we would come in every day and we'd say, what are we going to talk about today? We'd decide five minutes before we went on the air. It was like a nervous wreck, right? <laughs> show prep. Show prep. It's all about show prep. By the way, since you brought that up, <laughs> yeah. Marjorie and I in our old station, Marjorie and I would prepare for hours for a radio yeah. show. There was this guy, Mike Barnacle, and this other guy, Will McDonough, who did a show with Shaughnessy. Here's how Barnacle would open the show. Hey, so what do you guys want to talk about today? <laughs> it's a little bit different kind of uh, thing there. Absolutely but, true. Absolutely uh, true. Absolutely true. Yeah, what did you and I do, Dan? Did okay, we do fine. something about squash? Or was it <laughs> well, about we, turnips? We played, Al- we played Alice's Restaurant. It took 22 minutes. <laughs> oh, we didn't have to do anything. Right. It was great. <laughs> 
In any case, okay. wish it lasted forever, life with Larry Bird Celtics. Okay, so I want to ask you about the, yes. the title of this book. I mean, I read the opening quote uh, from Bill Walton, and I just about cried. Have you got it in front of you? Oh, it's so beautiful. I mean, it's just, I mean, he speaks in these, like, glowing paragraphs. And, and when I called him about it, you know, he said, he said, you cannot overemphasize in your book how much fun this was. It was better than perfect. Everybody couldn't wait to get to practice every day. Everybody couldn't wait to get to the airport, to get on the bus, to get to the games. Empty the thesaurus when you write this. You have the license to print whatever superlative you can find. The basketball was superb and the community was remarkable. The people in my neighborhood in Cambridge and all the Celtics fans, the guy running the parking lot outside the garden, the people in the restaurants, the people running the airport, and the people in the toll booths at the tunnels. It was such a joy. It was what you dream about, and I wish it lasted forever. Bill Walton. Wow, that does yeah, take your breath it, away. It, 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 it was awful. And even the front of the, the one at the front of the book, too, you got that? Oh, yeah. You? Go ahead. They call that, an, is that an epigram? What do they call it? I don't that? know what they call them. It's, all right, it's, so it's the front that, of the that book. one is... Um, here he is again. When you're, when you're part of something that special, it changes you. You spend the rest of your life trying to get that back. When you're doing it, it seems like it's going to last forever. When it ends, you realize how fragile, how tenuous, and how fleeting it all is. Boy, that's how I felt about you and me in the radio. <laughs> I know. It was, it was, it, and it was fleeting, as I recall. Okay. Yeah, so that's all true. So let me say, for those who have not yet picked up this book and are saying, well, you know, I'm not that much into the sports thing. It, 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 my take, this is less about what the amazing things these people did on the court and more about the culture and the people and the time. It is just, and since we started with Bill Walton, I didn't know Marjorie was going to do that. One of my favorite things is Dan, Larry Bird has no idea who Bruce Springsteen is. That's to begin with. But but then you move on that Bill Walton and everybody knows he was a big deadhead. Bill Walton apparently takes virtually the whole team to the Worcester Centrum at the time to see the Grateful Dead. And you describe Larry Bird from French Lick having a long conversation face-to-face with Jerry Garcia. Talk about something that is surreal. Is it not? It is. And then when Bill Walton recounts this, he talks about them like Jerry's still alive. (laughs) Everything's in the present tense. Like, you know, they're like this. They both do this. They do this. They they support their teammates. They're the leader of the band. You know, they they subjugate their e-wills for the others. They make the others better. And it's all like Jerry's still there. And uh, he, he said, he says, you know, no one ever thought this but Bill Walton, that Larry Bird is like Jerry Garcia. I personally never saw it. Bill Walton did. <laughs> so can you describe one of the things that is just incredible and every page uh, you have to step back and say, really? Talk about the access a young sports reporter for the Globe had to arguably the greatest basketball team that ever lived, the 85-86 Celtics and the few other years we were there, as compared to a Dan Shaughnessy covering the Celtics, whoever he or she is, in 2021, Dan. Right. I appreciate that. I mean, you know, when the start of this pandemic and all the sports programs are dying for programming, so the last dance is showing the Jordan thing on Sunday nights, and we're like, oh, that's, that's fun. And I kept seeing my 30-year-old self in the background in the old days when dinosaurs and myself roamed the earth. You know, the press sat right next to the bench. We were right in those seats. They now sell for thousands. The yeah. lowly media got those seats. So we're sitting right there. We could hear everything. And I would see myself in all these they're showing Celtics classics of the 80s. And, oh, there I am again with the Michael Caine glasses and the giant head of hair and all this stuff. <laughs> so I'm like, boy, that was a special time. And then when they resumed playing in the COVID bubble in Orlando, if you went to that to cover it for the Globe, we had to spend $60,000 to get a reporter into the bubble. That reporter was then quarantined for two weeks and had to sign a waiver saying he would not approach any athlete or coach if they saw them 
off campus or away from the gym or whatever. That's where we did all of our work. Again, when the NBA kind of got back on its feet, when Bird and Magic came in in 79, the league, the finals were on tape delay. They stayed in flea bag motels. They, um, there was drug issues. Most of the teams were losing money. And all of a sudden, Bird and Magic come in. The thing got popular again. The Celtics sold out 700 straight games. And the Bird, Magic, Celtic, Laker finals became like the Ali Frazier bouts yeah. back and forth. It really resurrected the league. Then, of course, Jordan comes in. And then you fast forward to the Dream Team, and it takes off. Now, the access we had in those primitive days was total. Uh, it was like we were on the team, except for not having the groupies or the, or the money or the fame. You know, we were with them all the time on the buses, open practices. We were in the hotels, same hotels, flying commercial, changing planes in Newark and Chicago, waiting for bags with Cedric Maxwell. I mean, we could really tell the readers what they were like. And that's what this book's about. I mean, we know who won the championships and who's in the Hall of Fame and what the stats are. I'm not going over play-by-play of these boring old games. This is about a bunch of guys, a once-in-a-lifetime group that was secure in their own skins, their personalities, large personalities, did not worry about who got the ball, who got the most money, who had the most social media followers, was not hugging the other team when it was over, trying to connect next year so we can all play together. It was a different time, and we were able to tell you, the fans, what they were like. That's what was special about these guys. Well, you know, also, I have to say, my claim to fame for much of my life has been that I lived in an apartment building in Philadelphia where every Thursday morning when I would leave for school, Will Chamberlain would go to his shrink. Oh, my God. And I only got to see him. But then I'm reading your damn book, Dan Shaughnessy, and Dan Shaughnessy, for money, is shooting free throws in a contest. Is he the greatest free throw shooter who ever lived or just one of the... Yeah, just about. That was so dumb on my part. But he, he was like... Larry Bird was like a pool hustler. So he grew up very poor. And one of the things that made him so great was his hunger and, and his, his never taking anything for granted, not having his butt kissed when he was a young guy. And, and so he just had this thirst for greatness. And he liked to take your money, like a pool shark or... Fats, whoever, you know, he was that guy in the pool hall. So whenever he saw us, he just saw dollar bills flashing. And he would, if you walked into the gym, he'd say, shoot for money. And if he turned and made it, you owed him five bucks and vice versa. But he always made it, so we were giving him money all the time. And then he was playing with tape on his hand in practice one day. And I challenged that. I said, you can't play in the game tomorrow night with that. And he says, well, they called me Scoop. He goes, Scoop, I could tape my whole hand and make more shots than you. And then he had clearly done this before. He says, that's what we're going to do. 100 free throws, $5 a throw. I'll tape my whole hand up. And I watched the trainer. It was like he had a boxing glove on. No fingers, no thumb, just a ball of tape and shot putting them. And we had to go shot in rounds of 10. And I was a pretty good free throw shooter in high school. I couldn't play, but I could make that. And um, so anyway... I was rebounding for him, and then like 25 in, he said, oh, I figured this out, and they all started going in. I mean, nothing but net. I didn't have to move to rebound, and they were all going in. And then when I would go out for my 10, I, saw, I started choking. I saw $5 bills flying through the air every time letting go of one of these things. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, we were, I was down about 40 bucks at the midpoint, and I said, how about we just call this off now? And he offered me a buyout, which meant another a 20 buyout. bucks. There. And, and so I said, no, well, we'll see it through. So he, he made 86 out of 100 with his, with his shot putting with his balled-up fist. And I choked, and I owed him 160 bucks. So I go to Bay Bank. There was Bay Bank in those days. I go to Bay Bank. 
I get 820s. I go to the gym the next night. We're at the old garden. You know, 430 in the afternoon, he's doing his shooting ritual out of the old garden. And he comes over with his greedy palm extended, like, where's my money? And so I gave him the 820s, and he stuffed it into his sock. And it was Converse All-Star, played with my money in his shoe all night. Oh. And then, like, three days later, he says, you know, his wife's diner. He says, yeah, diner and I had a big dinner on you, and she feels bad. She said, give that guy the rest of that money now. And he says, can you imagine her saying something like that? I'm like, yeah, what a sap diner is. <laughs> We're talking to the Boston Globe, Dan Shaughnessy. His new book is Wish It Lasted Forever. With all these great anecdotes about life of the Larry Bird Celtics. Speaking of Bird, you had another great thing where you, a lot of people, maybe because you were scooping uh, stories they didn't want, they didn't like you. Dan, Bill Fitch, the former coach, didn't like you. Robert Parrish yeah. apparently hated you yeah. is, and his wife as well. So, but, but, <laughs> but so his wife Nancy as well. But so you call Bird's house out in Indiana. I guess he's out mowing the lawn. Oh, it was ridiculous. Yeah. It was like it was like a Campbell's soup commercial. I mean, my birds on the phone, you know, and and she's like, "Yeah, Larry's out <laughs> mowing the lower 40 or something like that." <laughs> and and I said, "Well, I'm in Salt Lake." And he I think he said, "Yeah, she's he's flying there tonight. What's that all about?" I said, "I think he's getting the MVP award, but, you know, can you get him to the phone?" She's like, "Well, he'll be in for mowing a little bit." And I call back and, you know, the first, you know, he heard about Nancy Parrish chasing me down when they won the championship. And the first he picks up the phone and he goes, "Hey, Scoop, I heard Nancy Paris hit you with her purse. I'm like, yeah, yeah, never mind that. And then we go on to talk about he's going to fly from Salt Lake or from French Lick to Salt Lake. Now, there's an airport in French Lick, Indiana, believe it or not. And Bob Wolf, God rest his soul, the agent, has taken a charter that the Celtics team sent this little jet out to French Lick. And Larry is going out to meet him and has to literally push an aircraft out of the way in order for this thing to take off. The pilot, the Celtic team owner pilot, said, I didn't have it this bad in Vietnam. This was not O'Hare when they were flying out of of French Lake. Well, well, you you left something out of that story, though, Dan Shaughnessy. Now, my understanding from your book is that when Bird said to you that uh, he heard about the parish's wife throwing a purse at you, Bird said that you deserved it, and everybody was really happy and thrilled that she well, yeah, whacked you with the purse. Why yeah, was that? that was, Why I mean, didn't she like it, Dan? Well, I asked Cedric Maxwell. I couldn't break Parrish. I just couldn't crack it. I don't know what it was, and I talked to him. A lot of these passages are in the book where I'm trying to crack them, and it's just kind of a team joke that he just hates me, and I never got to the bottom of it. And I asked Cedric Maxwell 37 years later. I said, Max, because he's still close with, with the chief. I said, what was that about? He says, Chief just has a disdain for your ass. I said, well, I can't. I, I, I can't go anywhere with that. So anyway, I just, I just resigned. I did not track Robert Parrish down for help with the book. I did not. Okay. So Dan Shaughnessy, whose latest is Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with Larry Bird Celtics, which is just a terrific insider read. You mentioned magic. And obviously, even if people are not basketball fans out there, they remember the NCAA yeah. game. They remember the epic yeah. bird magic things. Your great wife, Mary Lou, was lucky enough to be at Michigan State at the same time as uh, Magic. Can you share some of her fondest memories about Magic Johnson at Michigan State with us? Well, Bob Ryan, our Hall of Fame basketball writer, is just Mr. You know, he's just he loves basketball and everything's a stat to him and he remembers everything. 
So when he heard that my bride, you know, this is like a long time ago, I, we come east and I, we got married. I married the Michigan State girl. And he finds out she was there when Magic was there. So he's asking about all these nights at Jensen Fieldhouse and what was that like. And she says, I never went to a game. I think I saw him in the infirmary once, you know. And I think, you know, I mean, Bob, Bob wouldn't speak to her for like years. He just, he could not believe that someone in our job would, would, would choose to, to live out their life with someone who wouldn't go to a game. I mean, there's a million of those stories, and I could, I could go on, but I won't. Oh, you would go on. Give us another one. <laughs> well, there's one at the end when, in like, I don't know, five years ago, the Celtics were playing the Bucks in a game seven, and the Bruins were playing a game seven with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And it happened to be when my wife and I went to, I don't know, it's in, it's in Canada. It's a sham. Um, they speak French. Quebec City. Quebec, Quebec City. City. That okay. was it. Yeah. So, so we did a driving trip to Quebec City, causing me not to miss one, but two Game 7s at the Boston Garden, to which she said, well, you can always go to Game 8, right? <laughs> Even Marjorie Even Marjorie gets I was Even just Marjorie, about to say that's that. that's right. We're talking to the Boston Globes, Dan Shaughnessy. <laughs> Dan, you know, you mentioned, and, and I grew up around here, so I remember this kind of, you know, that, that really – the Celtics were it. I think you said between oh. 1949 and 1970, nobody else had won a championship until Teen Angel Bobby Orr, as you called him, came to yeah. the Bruins. So they yeah. were the big. They were the big deals. That was way back with Kuzi and Havlicek and all that. I mean, it was. I'll tell you, they, when when Bill Russell was here, they dominated. They won 11 and 13 years, and it's growing up around here. It was it was part of the, you know uh, it was part of the ritual every spring. I was in high school before I realized the Celtics aren't the aren't the world champions. Like what's up with this? Every year they were, but anyway that that faded. Red B built them again in the seventies with Havlicek and Cowens and JoJo White. Rebuilt them again in the eighties with Larry Bird, but they were never as hot until Bird got here, and that's when the sellout streak started. And I mean they would they would tape delay the the president's State of the Union address to show Celtic games. I mean it was everything was Celtics. And the, they own the town, much like the Patriots do now. The Celtics own the town in the 80s. You know, you also taught this 85 86 team, eight, were there eight white guys and four black guys? Unbelievable. And I, I think mean, you yeah, wrote was, it was the whitest oh. team since 1970. And you talk about how even fans in, well, describe how the fans perceive the, the Celtics, not just here, but beyond our borders. Right. I mean, this was an issue. I mean, Boston, you know, I mean, I grew up here, so, and, and I was I was covering the city in, in the 70s and, you know, desegregation and everything was going on. So this was never far from the surface. And when you had this Celtic team, I mean, even in 1986, that was extraordinary. Eight eight white guys and four black guys on a team. and But the coach was black. And mm-hmm. Red Auerbach, he had, he had hired the first black professional coach in America, Bill Russell. He had the first black starting five. He drafted the first black player. Red was Jewish. He had a pretty good sensitivity to, to this kind of thing and never let any of it get in the way and just had the best players. Well, the team that had the eight white guys, they went 50-1 and one at home. They had five Hall of Famers, mm-hmm. and they won the championship going away. And their coach was black. So, but it was an issue. And, and Maxwell and, and Magic, they would say that within the Roxbury community it, in that, that, that time, the Celtics were viewed as the white team and the Lakers as the black team. And that within the Boston community, some of the African-American community was rooting for the Lakers because they were the black team. And, and Maxwell and Jerry Henderson talked freely in the book about what it was like to be a black guy on what was perceived as the white team. And Max is really good at this. You guys should have him on your show because he, he grew up in North Carolina. He did yeah. not think white guys could play. I mean, he had to be convinced. And he said, God got me back. He, put, he gave me the two greatest white guys of all time on the same team. 
Who was the who was it? Was it Maxwell or Carr? I can't remember who in the book who talks, I think, to you about the fact that if something good happens, there's a picture of a white guy on the cover of the globe. And yeah. if something yeah. bad happens, there's a yeah. black player that's on Max. the cover of the globe. That, that's, oh, Max, yeah. Max loves that. He would say, Scoop, do you ever notice what your paper does? He says, you know, whenever we win, they got Larry and Kevin and Danny out there celebrating. Dang. He says, when we lose, it's me and Chief with the big frown, the goofy looking face. <laughs> yeah. and, and sure enough, and you'll see this in the book, I found a picture where they lose to the Sixers. They're on the road, and there's this goofy picture of Max on the cover. Well, when I showed him that, it totally validated his whole theory. He felt great. And I said, Max, that's not true. We don't do that. But in this case, he was right, and that picture's in the book. Well, you know what? I, I love the picture in the book of uh, – oh, there are a lot of great pictures in the book. But I love the one of uh, Larry Bird sleeping, waiting for the plane at the, in the L.A. airport before getting the red eye back to Boston. I mean, it was unbelievable. Can you imagine if you walked on the airport now and saw a bas- an athlete like that? So here's what I wonder, Dan Shaughnessy. Obviously, it was much better for the sports writers and great pictures of all the sports writers sitting in the front row with a Jack Nicholson uh, right behind you guys, big Lakers fan. But what do you think it means for the teams that they are in a bubble, if not in the pandemic, kind of in the rest of their lives now? Does it impact the teams that they're distant from you guys, or is it just about you guys missing something that was? Well, we're missing something, but I think the fans and the readers are missing something because they don't know them anymore. Like, the Celtics got this situation now. Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart, new coach. Do they hate each other? like each other? Are they fighting? No one knows. No one knows anything. We will never know. So the fans lose out for not knowing. Obviously, in the media, we lose out as well. But in my view, it's the consumers who just don't know things about their teams anymore. Now, for the players, it's better for them because there's, no, there's no eyeballs on them in the, in the locker room, behind the scenes. You know, if guys get in fights, whatever, it's all covered up. It's, it's team-issued you know, team media, and, and you don't have anything get out of house, which is when that's where the best stories are, when, you know, like politics or anything else. It's always better if we know things than if they're hiding things or, or giving you the team-issued stuff. So I think we're all poorer for it. It's nobody's fault. It's the way it's evolved. And like a lot of things, we just don't have the access we used to. We're talking to Dan Shaughnessy. The latest is Wish It Lasted Forever just came out. Life with Larry Bird Celtics. It's a fabulous gift, I should say. You know, you – I think people even – who haven't read your book yet know that uh, there aren't many people who do what you do today who have not become sycophants of the people they cover, the Mr. Craft thing and all that sort of thing. (laughs) You describe uh, at the time that you were, I think your terms were, Dan Shaughnessy, professional acquaintances, not friends. I totally, and, and that's the right thing to do as a sports journalist, I get it in 2021 when there is not the same sort of physical proximity in the bar, on the plane, on the bench, etc. How hard was that with with people who seem to be having so much fun and all these great things happening right around you? Was your brain and your heart in two different places, if you know what I mean? Or how'd you do it? a really good question. I kind of got that out of my system when I went, when I became a professional sports writer, as opposed to just a fan who loved the games. But I I, I put that first. I had good good training by the people I read who worked in the newspapers around here. And I followed that. It would have been a violation. I I didn't see, you know, if you if you're covering politics, you're not supposed to be rooting for a candidate. You're supposed to be explaining to the to the voters and the and the readers why this happened. Give analysis, explain it, but don't don't be crying in your beer because your guy lost. That's not analysis. That's that's opinion. And in my case, I just I probably took it too far. I was trying to be the hard guy, and and I probably missed some good moments and some good ball and some beautiful, you know, poetry on the court, but I was intent on not becoming friends with people. They found it easy to not be friends with me, of course, because everybody does. But in this case, 
I just thought I had to draw that line. And it was okay to bump into guys and have beers and just kind of organic meetings, but I never said, hey, let's go to dinner tomorrow night. What are we doing tomorrow? It was mm-hmm. never planning kind of thing. But we were always in the same places. So like in college or like in the military, it was inevitable that there was just downtime waiting for bags. I mean, just you're, you're, you're forced to be together. I mean, Bird would, would you know, he'd say, they, you know, Scoop, they called me Scoop. He said, Scoop, do you notice how quiet it gets in this room when you walk into the locker room? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I get that. So there was a lot of, you know, bop, busting of chops and, and back and forth. And I, I enjoyed that part of it. And, uh, yeah, they, they knew. I mean, Mikhail would give me the business, say, oh, Shank, you know, your, your shoulder's sore from driving all those pipes through us the last couple of weeks, you know. And, I mean, it was just back and forth, but it was okay. Well, the book yeah. is more than okay. We both loved it, Dan. Congratulations, and uh, we, we just loved every minute. It's great. Hey, Dan. Well, thank you, guys. I'm so glad. What a great interview we had. You finally got your books. I'm so happy. <laughs> That's right. It wasn't easy. Marjorie was complaining about you, <laughs> I, I have to say. I did, oh, tell the truth. You know what? Yep. She, she had every right. I was really crabby that day. You she were crabby, but it, right, it's you know, okay, Dan. You, you it's win. okay. Under yeah. the bridge, water under the bridge, and all that kind of stuff. Hey, yeah. congratulations. Another great How many books have you written? That's 13. I don't know how you do it, Dan. You know, we got to give this book to our that? next guest, Dorchester's own John King, is going to love That's this book. That's right. It's his Christmas present. That's right. Hey, Dan, thanks for the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. To Same you to you. Too. Same to you. Okay, we've been speaking with the Boston Globe legendary sports writer, Dan Shaughnessy. You're um, not a sports but You love this book, did you? Yes, not? How much I fun did. was it, this? It, it, it's, it's, it's absolutely great. And we talk about how great the Celtics were, you know, how we were obsessed with them. I don't know if I ever told you this. I'm in labor. With my second kid, oh, I did this great. Go and ahead. I'm in there, and you know, where's where's my husband? Then all the doctors and they're, they're all out in the hall <laughs> watching the Celtics game. Excuse me, me <laughs> I think the baby is coming now. Can someone come help me, please? <laughs> well, we'll be there in a few minutes. We're down to two minutes in the last minutes of the game. Anyway, but you really get to see these huge stars as human beings, which is what I love. That's right. It's That's great. right. Anyway, it's a great book. Wish it lasted forever. Life with Larry, the Larry Bird Celtics. You are going to love it. And we thank Jan Johnson very much for coming for writing a great book. John King from CNN, Dorchester Boys, Jim just said, he is next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. Joining us is John King, CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch Monday through Friday at noon. Hello there, John King. Happy pre-Thanksgiving Tuesday. And to you. So, John King, we were just talking to Don, Dan Shaughnessy, the great sports writer from The Globe, who's written a great book, and Jim's going to send it to you. We're going to send it to you. It's great about Wish Larry it Bird. Wish it lasted forever. Yeah, you would love You'd that love growing it. up in Dorchester. Anyway, great story and fun to talk about. So let's get back to the real world here, John King. <laughs> We've got uh, terrible inflation problems. Uh, Joe Biden is trying to uh, fix that. He's very worried about the gas prices, trying to release um, some energy reserves and all that. But we still have Jerome Powell as head of the Fed, a man that Elizabeth Warren called the most dangerous man in America. So what do we take? What's the significance of uh, Biden sticking with Jerome Powell? Well, I think there are a couple of different pieces here. Number one, the strategic petroleum reserves. A lot of presidents, you know, uh, talk about doing this. A lot of presidents face pressure to do this. I do think it's interesting. You know, the president said back in July that inflation would be transitory. He regrets that now, and people mm-hmm. feel it. Right? Despite a lot of good economic news, people are feeling the pain of the pump, the grocery store. So he's trying to show he's trying something. We'll see if it drives prices down at all, but he's trying to show. In terms of the Powell thing, look, Biden is a traditionalist. He's an establishment guy. 
He thinks Powell's done a pretty good job. And this is an issue where he is fighting with your Senator Elizabeth Warren and the progressive wing of the party, which wanted him to make a change. Uh, but this is Biden's DNA. Uh, he doesn't think Powell's done anything wrong, and he thinks it's the right thing to do. And he's going to get a little flack from the left for it. You know, I, I was sort of surprised by that move. And speaking of surprise or maybe confusion, can you explain to me what the game plan of the January 6th committee is? Most recently, the latest people that they said they want to have testify are two pretty high-profile people, Roger Stone, Alex Jones, who clearly, I assume, are not going to agree to come before the committee. I don't know if they refer them to the Justice Department. What's the end game here? Is there a, When does this come to a head? When are there hearings? What's going on exactly here, John King? I don't think we're going to be able to answer the when are there hearings part uh, until probably after the new year. Um, I, I, but I do think that the committee, um, some of this is maybe a fool's errand, Jim. Uh, is Roger Stone going to cooperate? Is Alex, Alex Jones going to cooperate? Uh, even if they do cooperate, they're going to tell the truth. Um, I, I get all that skepticism. But I also think if you are trying to bring before the committee a long list of individuals who may know important things, not only about January 6th, but about the time between the election day and January 6th, who raised the money for this rally? Who organized what was then called Stop the Steal? Um, what did they know about the people who were coming? Where did the money come from? How often frequent and specific were the conversations with the then president of the United States? I think the, if you were investigating a giant bank robbery, these are the people you would bring in. And so the committee, I think, is actually doing a pretty impressive job. Will they get cooperation? That's a different question. I can't answer that question for you. Um, but I do think my, my take on this is um, roll your eyes. Um, at, at everything, right? Will the subpoena fights take? Will the Justice Department act fast enough? Will the witnesses cooperate? Uh, but give it some grace, and let's, I think, in January or so, what have they g- gathered? The one thing we don't know about is that apparently there are dozens of people who worked in the Trump administration and in the Trump political organizations whose names we don't know. I mean, I, I know some of them from covering you know, campaigns, mm-hmm. but mid-level people who are cooperating. Yeah. And, and, the, yeah. and people working on the committee say they're building a pretty good documentary record. So let's see what we get down the road. What's your uh, uh, I assume that when there's a hearing, one person they'd like to hear from is somebody who the insurrectionists wanted to hang. At least some of them did. Mike Pence. I can, can a vice former vice president refuse to cooperate with a congressional oversight committee? I think this is a fantastic question because I think clearly, uh, number one, as someone who was in the Capitol in the faithful hours, uh, he's a witness. Uh, He's a witness to what happened, let alone to the the, the Trump administration dynamics. Um, Does Mike Pence politically want to cooperate with this committee? Of course not. Uh, Will Mike Pence? I think that's another. You're asking great questions about this, some of which cannot be answered right now. And I think the, the, the leverage here, Jim, would be for the committee to have, you know, uh, an evidentiary timeline where they say, Mr. Vice President, we need you. You must do this. Uh, and then we'll see. Does he want to play? No. Will he have to? I don't think so, but let's see. So big picture here, they obviously just can't, the Democrats just can't let this go. I mean, and those Republicans who are upset about it too, which of course not very many of them, or at least the ones who will admit it, they've got to be, it seems to me, they've got to be thorough and they've got to be deliberate because of what happened on January 6th. And they want to do it again. They want to do it again, Marjorie. I, I'm not saying the violence part. I hope I hope they don't want to do it again there. But look at what is happening. Uh, try to roll back people's rights to vote. Uh, pi- try to change state election laws so that if politicians don't like the results of an election, they can overturn the will of the people. Right. Um, 
And, and then a lot of these people who are involved in the insurrection or organizing it still talk about violence or challenging your government. It might, some of the language is coded, uh, but challenge your government, be defiant, stand up. Um, so as a, as a transparency guy, I think building the history of this in every last granular detail is critical, just like the 9-11 Commission. It wasn't yeah. perfect, but it did a really good job. I think it's important for history, and I think it's important so that the, you know, two years from now, four years from now, maybe 10 years from now, if this challenge is still out there, uh, people understand the playbook when they have to deal with it. You know, uh, voting rights just came up a second ago, one of you mentioned, and and I'm sure you read the piece that uh, Cinema, uh, uh, Senator Cinema wrote in the Washington Post when asked about the fil- uh, relevant to the filibuster, which I, I assume most of our listeners, if not all, know. Uh, when there was a motion just to begin debating the voting rights, the two voting rights pieces of legislation in the Senate, I believe I'm right, John, that not one single Republican agreed to have it even move to debate, much less vote for it. Uh, and even though it had been modified somewhat by Joe Manchin to make it less, I, I'm using this term even purely for comparison purposes, less radical than the original one. She writes, my opinion is that legislation that is crafted together in a bipartisan way is the legislation that is most likely to pass, stand the test of time. And I would certainly encourage my colleagues to use that effort to move forward. It's almost like she slept through the whole uh, mansion amendment experience where not one Republican came on board. And she seems to be reaffirming in a very public way her position that I'm not I'm just not messing. I'm not no carve outs in the filibuster. Am I reading this correctly or no? I think you certainly are reading it correctly at the moment. She shows she shows no willingness to budge. So what she is saying is and, uh, you know, I want to give Lisa Murkowski, Republican of Alaska, some credit. She has said she regrets this and she would like to do something on voting rights. Okay. Um, there are a couple other Republicans who say they would like to do something. But what the cinema position is and the Murkowski position is, as long as she can't find, you know, she won't defy her leadership and find other Republicans, is only if we negotiate a bipartisan compromise, then we could somehow bring something to the floor. Uh-huh. Well, I just I just think that's fantasy land, Jim. Um, you know, could they could could you get a a bipartisan agreement with 10 Republicans on some things, maybe. Um, is the leadership going to do everything it can to get in the way of that? With every second I'm speaking, we get closer to the midterm election years. So I just, I, I think it's fantasy land. I hope I'm wrong. I, I really do hope I'm dead wrong on this issue and they can figure out even some of modest progress on voting rights, even if they can't do some of the bigger things that I think we all think they should do. Uh, if they could do some modest improvements to, or some modest protections against what some of the states have done, that would be hopeful. But I mean, that would be helpful, but I'm not at all optimistic. Well, the order here, I presume, is the build back better thing, and then the voting rights comes after that, right? Yeah, and I do think, Marjorie, you make a key point. Look, the president of the United States would just said he's picking a fight with liberals over the um, the Federal Reserve. Right. Um, you know, he's he's getting some tensions back and forth about can you do more in the economy? Can you do more inflation? Um, the president wants to try to keep his head down to the degree possible because he's going to have to navigate this again when between now and Christmas when they try to pass the reconciliation bill, build back better social safety net, call it what you will. Uh, and so I think the president understands he's going to have to, he's going to lose some political capital there or have to spend some political capital there. So he wants everything else to come after that. Will the tone change on voting rights? Will the tone change on pick some other issue uh, that you think the president should be dealing with after that happens? I do think that's a question mark. Uh, the president's calculation is, you know, I'm trying to stay out of the quickstand until I get this big piece of my agenda passed. Um, so I do think it's an open question. Again, even if the president were going to be suddenly much more aggressive and more bold on voting rights, or again, insert your favorite issue, after that happens, um, build back better might pass 
around Christmas time. I think the Democrats won't want to get it done. I'm actually fairly optimistic they will figure out, you know, if you believe they should pass this, I think that's a safe bet. They're going to change it a bit. But I do think something will pass. That, that I'm confident about based on conversations with Democrats. But even if that happens, so then we're picking up those other conversations after the holidays, which is an election year, which is good luck. You know, speaking of the, uh, I, as I've said every time, I almost can't say the words build back better. I don't know who was paid to come up with that pathetic term, but that I know that, well, of course, he was elected president. So I guess it worked to some degree. It, it, this whole thing where they want uh, the a lot of House members, at least, maybe some Senate members, too, I'm sure, from uh, high tax states like California, New York, actually places like Massachusetts, want to put back in the uh, greater deductibility of state and local taxes, which is a tax cut primarily for wealthy people. I understand they may have to do it to get the majority because obviously it's 50-50 in the Senate and they can only lose one, I think it's three votes in the House. How does that not give the Republicans all the ammunition they need, even though it's couldn't get more uh, hypocritical in light of their vote for the Trump tax cuts. How does that not hand the Republicans the the perfect thing to use in the midterm elections if that deduction is enlarged? Well, you've seen some Republicans already try to do that. And you you mentioned the great irony of it, given their own voting history on the Trump tax cuts and other issues over the years, but saying that, you know, the Democrats are trying to help the millionaires. Um, And, and, uh, you know, which they um, are, by the way, not only millionaires, but very wealthy hundred thousand heirs for the most part. But good. So so there's talk in the Senate. The Senate's going to make some changes here. There's talk in the Senate. Uh, Bernie Sanders is among those who wants to change that language. Yeah. One proposal that has been floated is that only if you make less than $400,000 a year do you get that state and local tax oh. you know, deduction re- restored for you. There's also, Jim, I haven't had time to read it yet, but apparently there's a new revised report from the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is much less critical, uh, much less damning of the Biden plan. Uh, the, the last report they released essentially said, you know, it is a giveaway to rich people. Mm-hmm. And I'm told that it, I'm, I'm told it actually dials that back quite a bit. But I haven't had time to read it yet. Talking to John King from CNN. So th- what do we make of all this talk about Biden? Will he run again? Won't he run again? What, what's going on with this and why are we all talking about it? Um, well, because Washington can't focus on substance and needs to talk about <laughs> drama. Uh, that's part of it. Uh, you know, part of it is he's the oldest first-term president in our history. He did just go get his first physical. Yep. All, indica- all indications are he's fine. Um, there are, you know, Democrats from time to time. It's not just Republicans. There are Democrats from time to time who just say, you know, even Democrats who like Joe Biden say, I can't imagine that two and a half, three years from now, a guy who will be 82 years old is going to run for re-election. Right. Um, now, let's see. People are living longer. People are working longer. Uh, Joe Biden was, you know, remember, we, we we could go back and find me on tape talking about how Joe Biden was running a horrible primary campaign, you know, after Iowa and New Hampshire. And he's the president of the United States. So I think sometimes, you know, I've been at this a long time. Sometimes we just got to take a breath and take one day at a time. But you know, this is human nature. Washington loves a soap opera. And again, why actually dig deep into the questions Jim just asked about tax policy or about, you know, how would the Build Back Better plan actually help people with child care? Uh, what difference would universal pre-K make in the life of working middle class families, the people I grew up with in Dorchester? It's much easier to talk about, will Joe Biden run again and Republicans think he's too old, blah, blah, blah. Um, some of that is fun and I like fun, but we need to slice the pie better. My, my argument is for, for our business 
is we need to slice the pie better. We can have that small slice of fun mm-hmm. as long as we do the big slices of substance. You know, I, I, I got to say, I think it is pretty – I am interested in the details of this plan because I do think it would be transformational for so many people. People – not just kids with – people with little kids who can't afford childcare. I mean, obviously, that's a huge thing. It's certainly as big as not being able to afford your rent or your mortgage or at the end of life uh, being able to get – stay in your home because you're going to pay more to people to be home health aides to come into your home. There's a lot of great stuff in this bill. I mean, I don't – and I don't get the sense that Biden – I mean, I said this to you before, John – is selling it as well as he should. Or maybe we in the media aren't reporting the selling of it as well as we should. I mean, which is it's it? A com- I, think it's a, I think it's a combination of those things. And look, it is a fact that Democrats have been arguing over how much to spend. And that's a great trauma. Do you spend $6 trillion or $3 trillion, or now we're down to $1.7 or $1.8 trillion? Um, you know, it, it is a, a fact, and it's an interesting story. I'm not downplaying the fact that when, you know, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez goes after Joe Manchin and calls him a you know, tool of the carbon industry uh, or, or things like that, you know, that's, that's important. It, it, the, Democrats, you know, the Democrats just won an election. They have united government. And they're having trouble. They're fighting among themselves over things. So that's important. So the substance gets lost in the process. Uh, the, the details get lost in the fight over the number. Um, I think all of us can do a better job. Now, it's not our job to do their work for them. We're not in the public relations business for the Democratic Party. But we are in the explanation business for our listeners and our viewers. Uh, and I think to that point, we can, we could do and should do a better job on the substance. But, John, you wouldn't know this because you're not here all the time, but I want you to know that it wasn't just Ocasio-Cortez, but Marjorie, who called Manchin a tool of the carbon industry, just to get your just to get your, cell, your facts well, straight there, from John. From my information, I mean, he really shouldn't be voting. He's okay, a let's not get started. Okay. Hey, John, we love talking to you. Thanks so much for your time, as always. We appreciate okay. it. Okay. John King, thank you very much. Hope you have a happy Thanksgiving, John. Oh, yes. John. Happy Thanksgiving, John. Same to you guys. We'll talk next week. Okay. Thanksgiving. Be safe. You Be too. Well. John King is seen as chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch Monday through Friday at noon, right on CNN. We watch it every day. Coming up. While we're on the air doing live radio, yeah, which is right. true. We do well, keep an eye on the screen. Just, you, know, yeah. you, can, you can multitask, Jim. You can multitask. You're reading right now. I see you over I there. am. Well, I, that'd be nice if you hadn't mentioned that, actually, <laughs> since it's unprofessional to do while we're on the air. Asking. I was anyway. not eating. I was about to eat. Okay, about to eat. <laughs> okay. Coming up, more turkey talk. That continues turkey on 89.7 GBH. What time are you going to have dinner? What are you going to eat? Should we get rid of turkeys? Because people don't like them, I guess, and go to, I don't know, tenderloin of beef or a vegan or whatever. That's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. This is sort of a bookends kind of show. We're going to end as we began. We were talking to you off this terrific debate in the Boston Globe today between Christopher Muther, who can't stand turkey, and uh, Deborah First, who uh, uh, likes it apparently a lot and I guess is more of a traditionalist. And so we were asking you how critical turkey is to a Thanksgiving experience. We also raised the issue of of uh, these one o'clock, and in one case, that woman called eleven thirty in the morning Thanksgiving dinner, even though she had an excuse to the kids. And a third thing uh, was it Suzanne, who I rear-ended fifteen you years ago, her, that's right. who unfortunately called the hurts. show. And well, she said her neck still hurt. She said her neck <laughs> hurt then too. I did rear-end her fifteen years ago in Melania Cast on the way to the other radio station. Yep. I think she is the one who called and said because her daughter 
is a vegan or a vegetarian or something or a pescatarian. They're not having fish. They're having mushroom wellington is their uh, Thanksgiving thing. So that, that sounds rather nauseating to me, to be perfectly <laughs> honest, even though I love beef wellington, but that's not it. So we want well, to know. Beef is a crucial ingredient. Of course, that isn't it? That's a very good point. <laughs> if you're a vegetarian, you wouldn't be doing it. So the key question, two questions, at least on the table uh, with Thanksgiving, really right around the corner, is uh, one, how critical is turkey to the thing being legit and real? What are your views on turkey? What's the alternative? And two, what's with these early dinner things, which I, I it gives me hives. I mean, it just makes me really uncomfortable. 877-301-8970. Also, people are talking about uh, right. you, you better stock up on your fire extinguishers. Make sure they work before you do one of those fried turkeys. I didn't know that. Well, the guy were... said you had to buy a fire extinguisher. A caller said you had to buy a fire That's extinguisher. right, because he had some of the oil, I guess, fall on somebody's feet. Yeah, well, that, oh. let's not get back to that. But uh, but the the other thing he said is if you spray it with CO two, I don't know anything about science. You can still eat the turkey. Is that what he was saying? If you if it catches on fire, you spray it with CO two. And uh, yeah, I don't. That's I don't okay. know. I, I don't know. I usually have a side order of CO2. I don't like it directly on the turkey. I like it as a – you dip it if you choose to do it. Okay, let's do this. 877-301-8970. Marjorie has that smile on her face, which means she saw an email that she likes. Is that what it is? Uh, Not yet. I'm looking right now. Brady in the car. Thank you for calling. Hello, Brady. Welcome. Hey, guys. Uh, Long time, second time caller. Whoa. What's up? Um, Thanks thanks for taking my call. So uh, about frying frying turkeys – they make electric turkey fryers that are not fire hazards at all. Oh, really? wow. Yeah, and and also you can I, – I was an engineer, and, and you can absolutely spray food with uh, CO2 because it's dry ice. Oh. And it'll just evaporate, and it won't leave any residue. It's totally safe. But wait a second. Um, Let's go wait, – wait, wait. Let's go back to the electric turkey fryer. Is that like an air fryer kind of thing, which really is a no, fraud? No, no. No? Air fryer's a no, fraud? No, no. It's, it's an electric deep fat fryer that will oh. handle up to like 22 pounds of turkey. Oh. Um, I have one myself. And one of the things that makes the propane fryers dangerous is if there's any moisture inside the turkey. Oh, that's what it was. In. Right, right, right. Go ahead. And, and and the turkey, you know, when the when the oil drops into the turkey cavity, the turkey becomes a steam cannon mm. and like blows your face off. That's, oh. a, that's a problem. With, Good. With the with the electric fryers, you put the turkey in. First of all, you you make sure it's fully thawed, and you 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 know w- wipe out the inside of the turkey with a paper towel so yeah. it's not wet. But it also it goes in sideways, so it's not pointed at your face. Oh, when, when it when explodes. When the oil hits the inside of the turkey. Yeah. Brady, yeah. that okay. is one of the most now, useful Brady, phone calls in years. Thank just, you. We just got an email from Art from West Bridgewater oh, who says say? that people who are having cocktails, you know, people who d- drink and fry, they should screw down the base of the fryer to a sheet of plywood so it can't tip over uh, and set it up outside. What do you think, Brady? Away from the house. What do you think about that? That's, that's a very that's a very sound idea. Okay. As long as the plywood doesn't catch on fire. That's a very good point too. Excellent. <laughs> well, then you have to whip out your multiple fire extinguishers. Brady, you were like our expert on you know, turkey frying. Yeah. Thank you for the call. Call I, us again soon. That was great. I think this would be too much for me. I mean, no, I think I, you I, could I, handle it well. I think. No, considering <laughs> your skills around I, the kitchen. No, I think I'll just stick to the oven. And, of course, I'm not cooking because I only cook so once. So the guy and... on the radio said you either had the turkey wet or not wet. <laughs> I'm not sure which was damp or not. It was one of the two. Yeah. I know that. 
Okay, Bob from Oklahoma. Hi, Bob. Frying turkeys are huge there. What's up, Bob? Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hey, Hi. what's up? Uh, we're going we're going to eat between twelve and one tomorrow. I know you think that's early. Todd. But the cowboy game. Well, the Cowboys game come at three thirty. Oh. And my wife oh. wants to watch it. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not the Cowboys fan, but she is. So. Yeah. We will eat when she wants. But wait a second, Bob, does your wife wife know you can eat and watch the football game? Does she know that or not? You don't want to do that. Like a TV table or something, no? Well, well, we want to have the family dinner, and then we'll have the after dinner, if you will. So we have food during the whole game. I love that. Yeah. Plus, plus this is kudos to my wife. She'll prepare three different, like, desserts and different uh, sides. Because we have different health issues in our family, we help her, but she leads the whole process and menu and all that. So, um, like, I'm diabetic, so she makes sure I have a diabetic cheesecake. Whoa! What a, a woman! Cheesecake that is wonderful. How now, does it taste, Bob? Well, since I haven't had sugar in years, it tastes great. Well, that's that's <laughs> I mean, fine. That's fine. Well, even though the Cowboys <laughs> yeah. lost the other day, good luck to your wife watching the game out there, Bob. And. Let us know how it goes. Bob, thank you very much for the call. See, that's my kind of guy, Bob, from Oklahoma. Three meals, or whatever he said. Three <laughs> phases. Isn't that what he said? Three phases yeah. of the whatever thing. Well, you do. You, you want to have the cocktails and hors d'oeuvres, and you want to have the main course, and then you want to take a little rest, mm-hmm. go for a walk maybe, and then come back for desserts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then in your case, you know, to get another pair of pants on. No, I, I, I did say earlier in the show that I my goal most Thanksgivings is and I got a lot of criticism from it after I said it. Is my goal is to be able to zip my pants within a week. And <laughs> last year I was actually it was six days, which I think I felt pretty good about. So and you didn't say, did you actually weigh in on whether you think we need to have a turkey on on Thanksgiving? Uh, I weighed in quite emphatically. Yeah. As, yes. yes. Okay. Yes, I am a. By the way, I like. But I, I don't. It's not because I'm a traditionalist, which I'm. I love turkey. In fact, I am probably the only person. Well, I'm not listening to the show. I'm on the show. But I'm the only person engaged in the show, the listeners, you or me, who will make a turkey two or three times during the year. Nobody makes turkey ever except on Thanksgiving. I make it two or three times. And you're a dark meat guy. Well, dark meat is much more moist. It's yeah. got much more taste to it. Yeah, I love the dark meat. Troy you, and Pe- you only eat the white meat. Maybe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture out to the dark wow. meat. I don't like fatty that's stuff. That's radical. I don't it's like not, fatty But it's stuff. not fatty like okay. a face. Yeah, I hate that. Okay, fine. I hate, that's why I hate okay, steak. Fine. Okay, fine. With the fine. gristle, you know, the gristle oh, marbled through. You know what I usually do when I get oh. a steak? I cut off the steak and eat the gristle. <laughs> Fabulous. Oh. Just Troy really, from Peabody, thank you for it's calling. cheaper, too, actually. Hi, Troy. What's up? Oh. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Huge Pleasure. Fan. Thank um, you. Just want just want to get your guys' opinion. My, so I, I'm huge Thanksgiving fan. Yeah. Lukewarm on turkey. Yeah. But my girlfriend is vegan, and every year we go and get something called a tofurkey. We know that. Which yep. is, oh, terrible. The, yeah. the tofurkey is just this big, bland it's thing. Gross. Looks like a turkey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um... Also, I just want to say, Marjorie, you got to get your cannabis uh, brownie recipe to my mom for this Thanksgiving ASAP. Okay, I'll tell you right now. It's in the Washington Post. It's a Washington Post recipe, and it's for gooey, fudgy uh, brownies. And you, you, you have to get the cannabis butter, which is kind of hard to make. 
I don't, I don't know how to make that. But. but she has two days to do it. Now, Troy, <laughs> you started this call saying you wanted our advice based on the notion that your girlfriend is vegan and she buys the tofurkey. I know I speak for Marjorie. Our advice is to find a new girlfriend. That's the solution. <laughs> Let us know how that goes and call us back or have her call us back. Happy Thanksgiving, Troy. Thanks for the call. Now, John just emailed to say his Please neighbor, say. Bill McKibben, the famed environmentalist we have on the show all the time, and I absolutely love him, just told him that the CO2 levels are now high enough in the atmosphere to safely deep fry the turkeys. <laughs> so there we you're go. Not, you know, you're not as nearly as it is. I never know. as adventurous or adventure, adventurous in your food tastes as I am. Don't you? Every year people call about the deep fried turkey or fried turkey. Don't you have a, at least some desire to try a fried turkey? Jim, I like peanut butter and I like <laughs> potatoes. That's what I like. Yeah, they have the same consistency. Do you ever think of that? I mean, it really. Do you think a little exactly. peanut butter sandwich with 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 mashed bananas in the middle? I mean, wow. it, it, really, it doesn't get much better than that. It doesn't Jim. get much better. Or than mashed that. potatoes made with heavy cream, Oof. or baked potatoes with like a half a stick of butter on them. You know what I'm By saying? By the way, one of the things if you're going to Thanksgiving at Marjorie's house, and this is really respectful on her part, she doesn't like me saying this because any compliment she doesn't like mm-hmm. when she serves the mashed potato with heavy cream. She has a surgeon uh, in put a stent in for all of the guests right at the same time that the meal is happening. So it's really it's a very respectful. Well, you don't do it all the time. I, no, it's you only don't. special occasions, right? Like, like when in, you're eating, for example, it's not the special occasion. By the way, I've had some of your mashed potatoes. They're great. They are not. They're they are beyond great. They're Blake in Roxbury, thank you for calling. Hi, Blake. Welcome. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. How are you? Happy Thanksgiving to you too. You too. I'd like to say, unfortunately, unlike most issues in this country, it breaks down ethnicity. Okay, Okay. we're ready. I'm African-American. I'm married to a Caribbean woman. And our Thanksgiving, my Thanksgiving growing up and our Thanksgiving today is completely different than when I go over my non-friends and family who are uh, not people of color. Their houses, again, dinner's around between one and two. There's maybe five or six things on the table. Now, come to our house. We're not eating till about four or five. Perfect. That's because grandma, the aunts, and your moms didn't stop cooking till about four that morning. Exactly. And <laughs> turkey, is, turkey is a side dish because there's going to be several main meats. There'll be a ham. There'll be some sort of roast. There'll be a turkey. There'll be fried chicken. Somebody's going to fry oh, some man. fish. There'll be a lasagna. There'll be macaroni and cheese, candy yams. Stuffing. Then there'll Ooh. be mashed potatoes. There'll be some sort of green beans. There'll be two potato salads. There'll be two macaroni and cheeses. Of course. And then we'll get to black eyed peas, collard greens, <laughs> and then dessert. There's going to yeah. be at least seven or eight different desserts. Be. Now, the best part is, is if it? you can quietly drink. And you can sit in the background. You can watch the drama unfold between the various different generations about whose potato salad is better and whose macaroni and cheese is better. And if there's just enough dark liquor served, oh, there's going to be a fist fight. It's going to be beautiful. And then we'll all make up and then we'll eat again around 10 or 11. And then we'll all say how we'll never do this again, but I'll be back here for Easter first and then Thanksgiving again. Blake, if, really I, Blake for Christmas. That is... if I'm not there till 5 o'clock, is that all right or is yeah. that too late? Jim, Jim wants to come. Perfect. He wants to come to your house because you got a lot of food over there, Blake. <laughs> 
<laughs> and he's got the right atmosphere. Blake, that was beyond excellent to end this discussion. Thank you much for the call. How appealing does that – you're not the gourmand that I am and that Blake obviously mm-hmm. is. How great does that sound? Well, I, I mean, really that's like what the, a meal is supposed to be. The macaroni and cheese. And a million a different lasagna. choices, 14 different yeah. meats, seven desserts. And, and he's eating at 5 o'clock, which is good. That means you can have you know, a couple, great. couple of cocktails. And they're fighting, he says, in the family. This is really that's right. great. He also made me drink really it up. And uh, uh, good thing we got some donuts left over from when the mayor came before. Okay, we are done. By the way, we're going to talk Thanksgiving again tomorrow. Never fear. Can't get enough Thanksgiving Never talk, I always say. Never can we get enough. Okay, thank you very much thank for listening much. to our pre-Thanksgiving oh. edition of Boston Public Radio, yes. our real Thanksgiving edition. will of course, be tomorrow. be tomorrow. You can keep up with us 24-7 by way of mm-hmm. our podcast. Tomorrow we're going to have Cy Montgomery. going to be with us for a new oh, installment great. of Afternoon Zoo, and she'll explore Thanksgiving in the animal world, Jim. Uh-huh. And Jared Bowen is here with an arts roundup ahead of the holidays to discuss art in Thanksgiving Day mode. I want to thank our crew, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Mackenzie Farkas, Rebecca Tauber, our engineer, John the Claw Parker. What are you doing Thanksgiving tonight in your TV show, Jim? Uh, we're going to talk about stuffing for the first 25 minutes. <laughs> then we're going to discuss, yeah. You know, by the way, when we did the tease for tomorrow's show, wasn't there somebody we mentioned who we're not mentioning here who actually, whatever, there's somebody else coming on tomorrow is great as well. Okay. What am I doing tonight? Actually, I'm really into this. Uh, 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 I assume everybody read that two of the men who spent decades in jail for the murder of Malcolm X were cleared the other day, and they were cleared in great part because of the work of the Innocence Project. And the guy who founded the Innocence Project, an old friend of mine from decades ago in New York City, Barry Sheck, is going to join me, and his co-counsel on the case as well, to talk about not only this this miscarriage of justice, but as Barry Sheck said, how history of the civil rights movement in this country might have been changed had there not been Edgar Hoover and other police misconduct in this case. Uh, I'm really interested in I think you will be too. That is all tonight at 7 o'clock on uh, Greater Boston. We'll be back tomorrow. Okay, Jim, thank you very much. Okay, well, thank you very much then too. I am Marjorie Egan. I'm now really very hungry. A lot of donuts in the next room, (laughs) courtesy of Michelle Wu. By the way, Michelle will be with us monthly. It's Ask the Mayor. Yeah, very excited. We really appreciate her being here today, and we will see you here tomorrow. Okay, I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browdy. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you can tune in tomorrow, and have a great afternoon.